This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Welcome, episode 56, In Class with Car. Let me first say good morning, good evening, good afternoon. Welcome. Hello, everyone from all around the world. And of course, Dr. Carr, good good afternoon, sir. Good morning, afternoon, evening, good day, my dear Professor okay. Hunter. And thank you again for creating this space, Listen, one step at a time. Yeah, you know, um, I was watching uh, the Falcon and the White Soldier or something before I came in. <laughs> And we're white probably, Panther, no, White Wolf, Winter Soldier, Winter whatever the hell, Marvel. With my man Isaiah. Oh, we talked about Isaiah Bradley. If you remember, Did but we? anyway, okay, let's, let's yeah, because I think we should have a whole dissemination of what that is. But as I was coming in, I had called you earlier today because I was like, uh, I think we need to talk about the Suez Canal. I don't know how it all connects, but I'm reading these stories, and you were like, uh. Wait a minute, what? So I, I want to start there. We don't plan these things out. And so, you know, outside of like, okay, let's remember we got to talk about Haiti. Uh, maybe we should talk about gun violence. So I just throw things out and I was like, how are we going to contain this? And how do we sow a thread through it? I don't know how you do it, but you somehow managed to do it. So I'm just going to sit back and toss that up and, and tell us where we're going <laughs> today. Well, Dr. no, 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 no. Well, well, it's interesting. Like we said before, way back many episodes ago, many, many class sessions ago, when uh, he was telling this story when I was on Broadway and the brother was doing the picture and uh, he told the story about how he charged like $50 to sketch this uh, lady's picture. And the lady's boyfriend was like, well, I got to pay you $50. It took you 10 minutes. And he said, yeah. 30 years and 10 minutes, brother. So so even though we don't we don't talk during the week or a lot, you know, we touch base with this is years. And so, you know, John Henry Clark used to always say this, a, a, a teacher who is committed to the craft, to her craft, to his craft in their subject should be able to draw the connections and the parallels. A lot of teaching is really about connection, as we both know, as teachers, it's about helping students who uh, know something, and we all know something, connect what they know to what they don't know. And I think one of the most powerful tools in the uh, in the toolbox of a, of, a, of a master teacher, those who, you know, we aspire to be like, is metaphor. What is this like? So instead of thinking of the Suez Canal, for example, uh, as just a canal, as just a, a waterway that uh, has now separates two continents, and we know that the Suez Canal separates the continent of Africa from uh, part of itself. When we think of the so-called Saudi Peninsula, the Saudi Arabia, as we would call it now, Yemen, that's part of Africa. It was since the beginning, since all the landmass was bunched up together. But it, as, as continental drift continues uh, to uh continues to, to, to go in, in, in the world, Panagia, right? Panagia, the one in the continents were all together. We can see like pieces of a puzzle as they drift where they fit before. Africa, one fifth of the world's landmass above ocean is the continent that has drifted the least in continental drift. It's been the one that stayed the most stationary. And so the Suez Canal, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> You know, as I was thinking about today, you know, and trying to wrap my brain around where we go and how we weave in all of this, I was thinking about, you know, the entry point of all these things and even watching the damn Marvel thing is 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 Africa. It's us. 
No question. And, you know, and as we grapple with, you know, what happened in Georgia and as we grapple with even, you know, this this thing I was watching where they had to come up with a new Captain America who's a white man because we, we need a hero. We need a hero. But that hero couldn't exist without that vibranium, without those black people around him supporting him. And so I was sitting there and I was like, you know, as we start to continue to do this, as we confirm the things that we know in our DNA, uh, ancestrally, it's important that we have these discussions as we talk about, oh, the Suez Canal, that means we, we may not get toilet paper and stuff because, you know, the, 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 the ship is jammed, but how do we relate to that? What's what's going on with Haiti? How do we relate to that? Like, and well, I know you, you can do that. So, well, well I, what I hope I can help contribute to along with you and all the folks who are in this growing nation and y'all make sure y'all go over there to narrative and really get so we can do the deeper dives. And everybody that means everybody's participating. That's really the ultimate objective in, in all then, of it. Let me let me just put an under, underscore to that. You know, please do. Please I've, do. Been, I've been watching a lot. You know, I sit on on a, on a radio show where I have a lot of people come on and they talk no about fact. different things. And you know, there's a conversation about you know civil rights leaders doing commercials for Cadillac and things. Hmm. And so you know, everyone needs to eat, and everyone has a vision for what kind of life they want to live. Um, you know, and, and if your dollar is tied to things and, and particularly when you're doing that hard work is thankless. We know that King died penniless. We know that Malcolm died penniless. We know that, you know, that, that so many of our civil rights leaders sacrificed everything yes. to nothing. And so now the, yes. the paradigm has shifted where there's money available for, for folk to both live as millionaires and also do the work. I don't know how that, that sits with some folk, but I, I, I know here for us, and I, I don't want to disparage or talk about anybody else, but what we're doing. You right. know, when you dropped that thing about Carter G. Woodson, and we started this organic conversation last year during this the, the height of the pandemic, you you a light bulb went on. We don't need to beg anybody. We don't need to, and this is why the Central Africa conversation must be had. We're at the center, like you said, move the least. It is the center. It is the largest. All of these continents can fit inside the continent of Africa. We're talking about China, we're talking about all of the, the, the North America, all of that. Japan, Russia, all can fit inside of Africa. That's how big the landmass is. So it's the center of the world. And we're the center of the world. So so we need to be able to um, monetize our own situations. And by monetize, I mean, have a vision for what this is going to be. All of you who have joined Narrative from the beginning know that this is just the ground level of bricks that are being laid in a pyramid that is going to span hundreds of years, thousands of years, hopefully, if we do this right, and will provide us with everything we need, both visually, audio-wise, books, all of that. That's the grand vision. So you're not, you're not buying something. No, you're part you're of something. something. Thank you. Okay, yeah. so I just wanted to say that. No, you're part of something, and I'm glad you said that because this this foundation is is made of us, and this structure is made of us. The thing that contemporary um, movement workers, and I like the way Claiborne Carson describes it. Uh, they ask him, well, "Where did you mark the civil rights movement?" We can't really mark. You just talk about the Black Freedom Struggle, which began when somebody put their hands on you, on your ancestor, on the continent, and that Black Freedom Struggle is global. And in the United States, it's no need to talk about a civil rights movement, a long civil rights movement, a black power movement. I mean, all these are labels which ultimately empty into a larger label, which is a liberation struggle. And what is that struggle really about? That struggle is about uh, the struggle to live fully. 
And when we look at these contemporary debates or discussions, rather than and, and all everything is subject to analysis, to critique, to, to discussion, but we can't ever lose sight of the ultimate objective. The ultimate objective is to live fully. Now, the obstacles to living fully have shifted over the years as human beings have moved through time and space. And so uh, we will and we'll talk a little bit about what animates folks like the very terrified Brian Kemp. And you should be terrified, sir, uh, because, you know, with your corn pone fake accent until you looked over in there and saw your staff moving and didn't know what was going on, at which point you said, uh, what's going on over there? Yeah, you changed your accent. Caught you, little boy, little fella. Uh, while uh, the sister was knocking at your door and apparently your little, you know, flaccid fleshed stormtroopers, uh, who the only thing keeping their torsos together is that Kevlar bulletproof vest, uh, decided to lay hands on her. And thank God Henry McNeil Turner wasn't there. We're going to talk about Henry Turner in a minute. But, you know, what is animating all that is fear. And what has changed since the iteration of the Black Freedom Movement of the 60s and 70s to now, of course, even over the last 20 years has been social media, the explosion of social media. And so what do you do when the algorithms which govern social media, including this platform, which is why, uh, Professor Hunter, you're always telling us to hit that like button and alter the algorithms so that these come up in your feeds. Uh, those algorithms adapt to people who are inclined to search for certain things. And what we're calling white nationalism now, finally, in the country, and some of us have been calling it what it has been since the beginning. You know, those algorithms are adapting to, you know, people who are inclined and have external reasons to be more inclined to search for other explanations than the ones in front of their face. Why am I poor? Why do I feel upset? Let me go look for it. And as they look for it, 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 it increases exponentially through QAnon, through 4chain, 8chain, whatever you want to call it. Right. And so ultimately what we're doing here on Saturdays and now and this is just like you say, this is just the welcome mat, the front door. When you go into narrative, then you see what we are continuing to do. And everyone is part of that, bringing what we know together. We're we're punching through the noise, through the static. And we're joining other people who are punching. There are a lot of people out there punching. That's why I don't I don't question motives as much. You know, when I see, you know, somebody like a Tamika Mallory at the Grammys. I mean, the motives, you know, it's difficult now because at some point we have to figure out how can we punch through the static to get a little thing in. So somebody says, oh, OK, so now let me get engaged because that's really how movements work. So we're, we, we're, we're building this, all of us, everyone in this conversation, everybody listening to us now, everybody typing stuff and everybody thinking people are going to join us in a second in discussion we have um we're punching through the static and the more of us who punch together the more we can get through the static and the more resources we have now you know I, I, it's interesting people have been saying you know you, you hold up books you talk about books then i go look for the book and the book is a million dollars president you say well i've been he's been buying books for 30 35 years almost 40 years and i say yeah, it's not, you know, if, 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 if those, one of the reasons we've built this piece and we're building this and continue to really develop it is so that you don't have to do all that. But for those of you who do, you don't have to have every one would you have time. But if you do get it, then the question is discussion, study. That's what we're doing on the narrative side. We need discussion. We build things together. And then and while we're doing it, we're telling our stories as we're seeing every week. People are coming in saying, well, this is my piece of it. This is what I did. This is what my ancestors did. This is what we're doing. And that is where the momentum comes. And that struggle, the ultimate human struggle is to live fully, is to live fully. But there are two steps that precede it. 
And they have emerged over the arc of the last several centuries and have intensified over the last century, especially the last half century. And this last 20 years through the explosion of social media has created such a wall of static that it's difficult to see beyond that wall to the forces in meaning living human beings and institutions who are pulling strings to keep people going in different directions. And those two things that precede living fully that are right alongside them now, one is to keep the planet habitable. Because if we don't keep the planet habitable, the planet is going to transform into something else. And there won't be anything living in the sense that we talk about living on it. The other, the net, the step now is also not to destroy the species. Because <laughs> we have the capacity to destroy the human race and to damage everybody else, everything else, but everything else will recover. Much of it, humanity won't be here. And guess what? It won't be the first time a species went instinct, distinct, uh, it went extinct. Except it won't be a meteor from without it will be a nuclear weapon from within. This is why the, but the, the challenge we have is that when we stand up for that, Martin Luther King, Shirley Graham Du Bois, W.E.B. Du Bois, Paul Robeson, when we stand up for those kind of things, we have real enemies in the world who don't care about any of that because their concept of reality, their idea of living fully has been so narrowed by hatred, by fear, Brian Kemp, troopers, has been so narrowed that they see their survival as somehow not connected to the rest of us, except, and here's the metaphor, here's the bridge, the Suez Canal comes in. It's all connected. The illusion is that it's not. And so when we think about what has happened over the last uh, few days with the uh, Evergreen, which is the name of the 220,000 ton boat, <laughs> which is stuck at the south end of the Suez Canal, and as a result, is costing the folk who own the ownership class, that tiny group in the world, that transnational group in the world, costing them roughly speaking about nine and a half billion dollars a day. Mm. Uh, and that's just to profit people, uh, you know, which has caused the United States government to make a statement in the last couple of days to say at the behest of business owners, including the largest shipping company in the world, AP Mahler Marsk, that they will offer to help Egypt unstick the Suez Canal. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, because these business people got on phone. Why? Because guess what? 12% over one tenth of global trade that goes by sea goes through that little strip. Goes through that little strip, which should blow everybody's mind because it's all connected. So when you go, I mean, and I won't even get into all the other in the last year, what we've seen, we've seen interruptions. Uh, we saw a fire in Japan uh, when combined with what this fool Abbott and his criminal enterprise business friends have done over the decades in Texas when the weather hit is might likely cause a shortage in superconductor parts, which means what? If your computer price goes up or your cell phone, what happened? Yeah, that's see, see you, you thought it wasn't connected. That freeze in Texas, you didn't even hear about the fire in Japan. There are two papers I read every day, whatever else I read on a daily paper. And one's the New York Times. The other is the Financial Times. I don't read it because I like the perspectives. I read them because, see, people, I read the Financial Times because that's the paper of record coming out of England for the money people. They don't write that paper for me. I'm eavesdropping. And today's headlines of the Financial Times, the Suez Canal was the headline on the upper left-hand side of the print edition of the paper. Also, China 
flying their planes into Taiwan airspace. And now these money people are afraid that China getting ready to take Taiwan back. Also in Europe, there is a third wave of COVID that is capsizing the second wave, threatening the, 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 to the total of the first wave. And they're saying they may get to 100,000 more people a, a day getting COVID and because of this B117 strain. And of course, they did mention Ethiopia versus the Tigray and the massacres there, which is terrible. And it's very important to talk about all those things. But I'm, what I'm saying is that it's all connected. And while we're here talking about Grammys, while we're here talking about, you know, who got what and the world goes on. And then we go to the store and be like, hey, how come this toilet paper? Suez connect? What they got to do? OK, <laughs> all connected. And I should mention this because we're going to clean up a little bit more on Haiti today. And we're going to go kind of more quickly. Understand that in terms of foreign policy, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party in this country are pretty much indistinguishable. Their foreign policy is the same. That means that, you know, on issues of uh, of trade, on issues of trade protection, on issues of uh foreign policy in terms of military event uh intervention i don't know if y'all see did you see the president did you see the a press conference with joe biden on uh i did what what did you think of that just give me a sense of that because i'm gonna tie that i'll tie that very quickly and we'll use that to walk across the haiti but so uh, i looked at it through two two eyes first as a journalist yes. um i feel like you know there was fatigue from trump for four years of trump the 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 media class has been uh, so beaten to a pulp that they didn't, they forgot how to be, be journalists. <laughs> so, because uh. <laughs> so, you know, it's like you got PTSD because you don't know this man gonna cuss you out. He gonna about that? Your mama, you know. So now you have somebody that has, you know, a working brain for the most part who yes. has a little bit of a humanity, and they didn't ask him questions about COVID, about, you know, uh, all of the things that we need infrastructure, things we need answers to, they 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 uh, showed up and asked some, you know. Some Not questions. one question about COVID. Wasn't that bizarre? That was bizarre to you, right? Yeah, uh, but I also, I, but I understand too, because I don't know what journalism is right now. And I don't think journalists know what journalism is. You oh, know, there's God. such a, what, what Trump did to this country, uh, but it's not Trump because it pre predated him. Mm -hmm. you know? and, and in many ways, I think Obama got a free pass, too. I think, you know, again, the, the chase for eyeballs, algorithms, clicks, people for money, for advertising has completely undermined the ability to be able to do the one job that you were charged to do, which is to get to hold power accountable, period. My God. My God. Period. So that, God. that was kind of how I looked at it. Um your, your thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I think it's important as we think about I, I agree with you. I mean, as a journalist, I, I, and it was very interesting, wasn't it, how, you know, Michel Sender very early, you know, raises the issues and then, well, the issues that were raised. And then, like, no fewer than, what, two or three other journalists. Going back to what Yamiche said, I'm wondering, are y'all, <laughs> I mean, like, everybody now, everything is in a moment of reformation. And for you, now, a seasoned, award-winning journalist to say, I don't know what journalism is right now. That's very striking. We should, we should, we should sit in that, even as we're having this conversation. Sit with that. Y'all write that down. I, mean, I know a lot of people jot down notes and write that down. Because, you know, there's a reason why the platform is named narrative. We can't capture reality. 
In fact, Howard Thurman, the great theologian, and it was Howard Thurman, ironically, reading Howard Thurman that sent me to uh, a thing to tie this together today. I thought I had that Howard Thurman book. or was a brand new book on Howard Thurman, and I could have sworn I brought it over here. But at any rate, Howard Thurman used to talk about theology as uh, a religion. Here it is. Yeah. Peter Eisenstadt, uh, Against the Hounds of Hell. Undefeated. <laughs> no, I'm saying no, okay. yeah, no, I just started reading it. Just came out actually. Um, but Howard Thurman, you say, you know, we human beings try to try to understand reality, but we can only stand a fraction of it. He says, so what religion really is 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 a human's attempt to grasp reality. And since you can't grasp it, we make up stories and we take them little stories and use them as the handle to move our perception of reality around and around. That's what a narrative is. And it's interesting because Eisenstadt, who worked on the Howard Thurman papers, all the volumes that over there, uh, really Dr. Walter Earl Fluker, very important brother who is the, is the leader of that project, uh, a, a reverend, a PhD. Uh, his son now is over the archives at Atlanta University Center. Uh, good young brother. But Eisenstadt is a historian. And it's interesting to read his perspective because he he refers to Thurman as a anarchar anarcho uh, uh, anarcho mystic. In other words, he's he, he's he's not really a Christian. And Thurman, it, the book opens with them with Gandhi, which is where I'm going with this because they they ask Gandhi about nonviolence. Howard Thurman, uh, Sue Bailey Thurman, his wife is there. Another brother, they tra they travel to meet Mahatma Gandhi, so they're there. And it's and it's Howard Thurman and Sue Bailey Thurman. Who engage with Gandhi first, and Benjamin Elijah Mays and um, uh, Howard Thurman? Eisenstadt actually wrote another book about that, co-authored a book about that. So when we talk about Martin Luther King and Gandhi, it's not Martin Luther King; it's Benny Mays and Howard Thurman, who were on faculty at Howard at one point. Then Benny Mays becomes the president of Morehouse, and Howard Thurman becomes the dean of the chapel at Morehouse. Martin Luther King encounters Gandhi through black people. The, the African, in fact, there's a book called The African-American Encounter with Gandhi. I probably didn't even have it in this room over here. But at any rate, it talks about that. I'm saying I'd say that in the in the course of an early morning conversation with Gandhi, the Thurmans asked him about nonviolence. And in fact, I think it was Sue Bailey Thurman who asked him, when you were in South Africa, bro, how come you didn't engage the blacks? How come you didn't get them into this struggle that you're now unfolding here in India? And he said, well, you know, I didn't want to endanger. I didn't want to compromise their movement. Gandhi, I don't want to call him a liar because I ain't knowing, but that wasn't completely true. I mean, Gandhi was also a nationalist. And I'm saying I'm saying all that to say that when I look at Joe Biden, Joe Biden's a nationalist. And part of the problem that we have in the world is that we look at these flags. We hear these anthems. We make up these imaginary things called nation states. And we think that somehow an imaginary line on the map or imaginary border that's policed with guns and violence is somehow going to stop something that's happening somewhere else from happening to us. The boat stuck in the Suez, the price is about to go up. COVID is like, well, that's a boundary. I didn't know that. <laughs> and now everybody got it. We're all knocking it in the United States. Do y'all see that's just some lines on the map? Y'all didn't inoculate everybody on the continent of Africa where you tested half this stuff. You didn't not Europe is now going up. You, you're not watching that every on loop on CNN. What you got to read somebody else's paper, the money people paper to say, hey, this is because it's great crater our economy. In Latin America, you've got COVID virus and Cuba, which has developed its own virus, the only one in the hemisphere outside the United States that's developing some or North America. They like we got doctors ready to go. 
But the United States with these imaginary lines, we can't let these Cubans come here. Uh, shout out to Obi Agbuna and all the folks who are saying, you know, let the Cuban doctors come since y'all can't handle everything, apparently. But my point is this. The virus doesn't know any national boundaries. So when I watch that press conference, I'm listening to Joe Biden, not really talking about foreign policy, but Joe Biden is talking about foreign policy when he says, Shh, this, what these bills they passing now make Jim Crow look like Jim Eagle. Hmm? Okay. And then when they ask him, you want to run again? Uh, yeah, I intend on running again. So that's a yes. Okay, what what is journalism? He, he said, "Can you hear?" And then, and then, what well, do you expect uh, Kamala Harris? Kamala Harris to run? Uh, yeah, she's doing a great job. Is it? And then, well, what about the Republicans? And he said, "Well, you know, I plan my life in increments. I move by, you know, the, I move by faith in terms of like little bit at a time. I can't see the future." It remind me of Howard Thurman. And then, then the lady was like, "So that's a yes." So the Republicans, he said. I don't know if there's going to be a Republican Party. Do you? Ooh. Just in that moment, I'm hearing how now I can see how the Democrats are planning this. See, what we're watching now with these desperate moves from the white nationalist party, these, and in fact, let me pause here just for a second before I get too far afield and talk about that to say this. Democrats versus Republicans is only a binary within the ecosystem of D versus R. When you step back and look at the function of political parties in this settler state, this capitalist state, and capitalism is global too, it's not local. That's why an American company can tell the, uh, the US government, hey, we gotta go get this damn boat out because this money getting ready to get messed up. And so on TV, it looks like humanitarian, but really it's what they call transnational corporations because corporations are transnational. When you see how Democrat and Republican political parties function in a capitalist state that's part of a world system. They are functioning as the uh, the government tools of whatever interests have the most influence over them. Now, in a country like the United States, where you just don't have a military to say, let's just dispatch with all the uh, niceties. And then we're going to talk about Haiti in a second in that, too. Let's just, we ain't having no damn elections. This is going to be general after general after general after general. And these generals are going to be picked by the places overseas that have the financial interest in the factories in Haiti. And hey, shout out to Bill and Hillary Clinton, that factory y'all built, and that big hotel, luxury hotel in Petionville with the Clinton Global uh, Initiative, which, by the way, gets its wings underneath it in those last couple of years of Clinton's presidency as they come in in the wake of deposing uh uh, uh, Aristide and then bringing him back and start dictating the terms. We know what y'all doing. It looked like humanitarian aid, but it's really neoliberalism. So at any rate, in countries where they're still voting, you, you can't just win an election by saying, look, I'm representing Coca-Cola and Home Depot. I'm representing, uh, so vote for me and I'll get in. And uh, yeah, I'm representing uh, Lockheed Martin and uh, the Carlisle Group. And I'm running against my opponent who is uh, Microsoft and uh, Apple and Google. Wait, y'all funded all our campaigns? Okay, all right, pause. What I'm saying is your children should be able to have a better life than you did. And see, you, so, so you still got to give votes. You can't just come out and say, you know, which is why the HR1 is so terrifying to the white nationalist party because HR1 is going to, ha has a provision that triggers uh, public funding. 
for elections. So, you know, this is an attempt to at least erode what John Rennett Roberts, Johnny John Roberts, my man, John Roberts, you can't get no whiter name than that. Well, maybe you can. John Walker, a uh, U.S. agent, the new Captain America, if you're watching uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. But the, the point is white bread, whiter bread than John Walker on uh, on Falcon and the Winter Soldier. But that's that, that Citizens United case of 2010, where they say, you know, you can have money is speech and you can have unlimited speech. So therefore you can have unlimited money. HR1 is trying to address that in part, pull that back a little bit by saying, no, we should have public funding once you raise a certain amount of money. Now, why is that important? How does this all tie together? The Democrats and the Republicans are the same party as it relates to uh, the interest of capital, the interest of international finance and corporations this is why they both are always talking about the middle class. I mean, that's, that's the fig leaf they use, but here's where they differ. And here's why we have to look at them as the same party, but look at them as the same party through a different lens than just localizing it to these imaginary borders we call the United States and thinking somehow that this is a binary between Democrats and Republicans. No, widen your lens and realize that this is the function of political parties in so-called democracies. In order to be in place to pass laws and rules and enforce laws and rules that allow those who are funding them to continue to do what they're doing globally, they've got to get local votes. And to get local votes, they have to cater to enough people in terms of messaging to get those people to vote for them. And here's where race comes in and white nationalism. The Democrat Republicans, same party. But let's look at the continuum. On, one, on the far side of the continuum toward transnational capitalism, you've got the interests uh, represented by the white nationalist party, the Republican party. I'll say white Republican, come back to white nationalism. The Republican party is the party of business. And by say, by not that the Democrats aren't, but they are the party of unvarnished business, laissez-faire capitalism. Go back to the Hoover administration, proceeds and comes after and comes in the wake of the Great Depression. Go back before that to the 1850s and 60s when they were founded, in part because there's a sectional conflict because the South led by John C. Calhoun and them, who, by the way, the father of the filibuster, Mitch McConnell, but it's okay, because you about to have a front row seat to the end of your entire political life and your little settler project. So you don't go nowhere. Keep talking, bro. Keep talking. Now, those of you who are listening, y'all got a problem. But at any rate, John C. Calhoun and them in South Carolina, and then immediately in 1861, all those Confederate states, the same states, by the way, that have not expanded Medicaid expansion, even though the money was passed through the COVID relief bill, so that all those governors in Mississippi and Alabama and all those governors in Florida, all those governors in South Carolina, all those governors in uh, in, in, in North Carolina, those, well, governor of North Carolina is trapped by this legislature. All of you who don't have health care, who are not black and brown, all of you who are black and brown without health care in terms of that enhancement of that Medicaid, you blame them. Those are the white nasties, which brings me to the point when the South is threatening to pull out because they got four million of our people in enslavement. They got a set labor class and they're thinking about diversifying their economy, moving banking, moving it from New York and Boston and Providence, Rhode Island and insurance getting it down to Charleston, getting it down to New Orleans. And they're saying, we can diversify. Let's industrialize. Let's get some factories in there. Why? Because England is moving toward industrialization. And then we can just expand the Confederate states and move them. We can take over some Caribbean islands. We can go to, maybe we'll fight more of the Mexican war and take the rest of Mexico. We'll go down to Latin America and make some deals. The union now is like, they're going to leave us. And so who is driving the don't let them leave argument? Business. But the business don't have a natural political party in the 1850s and 60s to advance their interests. So what do they do? They start in the 1850s, the Republican Party. The Republican Party is about business. 
The Republican Party is about laissez-faire. The, the, the Republican Party is about the naked economic capitalist interest that this country is founded in. Now, why is that important? At that point, the Democratic Party is winning elections, but the Democratic Party is teetering. Why is that important? It's important because by the time you get to 1860 and 61, now you got a real problem. You got a guy in office, Abraham Lincoln, Republican, this new party, he's representing them, but you got these Southerners getting ready to pull out and they're like, hey man, this is gonna be terrible for business. Some of the citizens of New York City said, let's go to Albany and tell the governor of New York, if they leave, we gotta leave with them. Why, do you know how much money, you know how, much, how many raw materials and crops come through our port and, and from there and go to the world? We gotta leave with them. So Lincoln, what you gonna do, bro? You gotta, you know. But see, the problem is they get painted with the brush that if you fight the South over this, this is really a war with slavery. Because oh, guess who else is in the Republican Party? And guess who is pestering the Republican Party? These abolitionists. Because you realize that slavery is at the heart of this sectional conflict because slavery is the labor force, the free labor force in the South, even as the North got to pay its labor, which is a problem for the corporate owners, owners and their new tool, the Republican Party. So they're like, yeah, but and so we win this war. We could basically go down there and reconstruct the South and make all the money because we can get our hands on the cotton, which is king, the global car cotton market. We can go build railroads and Cornelius Vanderbilt and all them cats, and, you know, come into that. I mean, yes, this, this is cool. So anyway, I don't get too far from me because I haven't left the Biden press conference. We'll come back to this in a second and I'll walk back through the 80 and connect it all together to Brian Kemp in Georgia. So what you see is the Republican Party is pressing they can't leave. But when they do leave, you got to bring them back. The Democratic Party is the home of those people who see themselves as the poor people, the working man, because ain't no women voting. The people that, you know, that's Andrew Jackson populism. But that is also equated in this country. We start talking about oh, working class people and working people and blue collar and all this stuff. Eventually blue collar, later blue collar. That's white people. So the Democratic Party is the open white nationalist party. The Republican Party ain't pro-black. It's just that the Republican Party is going to need to stop the South from leaving. And what and then what emerges is the Civil War. The Republicans are in charge of the federal government. The Democrats see themselves as being set upon. And so I'll wind this up very quickly. In fact, let me put my timer on because I don't we, we're not gonna go whole real long, long, long this this uh this this time. So during the Civil War, you know what happens. Professor Hunter, you know what happens, right? There's a floating signifier. Let me not let me not say it that way. There's a common element in this that we haven't articulated yet that is always present and always determines part of the outcome. That will be us. The floating signifier, I'll come back to in a minute. I want to use that phrase for that. And what happens? We find out they fighting. Oh shit, they fighting? Great. So uh We've been turning up rebellions since we got here. Now it's time to crank it up. And black people, Robert Smalls and his people in South Carolina, all them Negroes in the uh, uh, the New Orleans, Louisiana uh, Free Guard, them Negroes who's in Oklahoma, who well, they've been marched over there, but mostly uh, uh, South Carolina, the first South Carolina regiment, United States Colored Troops, also known as the Gospel Army. Them Negroes is like, oh, they fighting? Here's our chance. And as W.E.B. Du Bois says in Black Reconstruction in America, it is black people in the United States that turned the Union Army from a war, from an army to stop 
the union from dissolving to an army of liberation. And they turned the war from a war to keep the union together, to preserve the union. Because some of the abolitionists like, let them go. William Lord Garrison, let them go. They, the black people in the South, especially, turned the war from a war to keep the union together to a war of liberation. In other words, we get involved. So, well, hell, we don't care why y'all fighting. This is our chance to get free. Fast forward to 2021. When that sister knocks on that door and them white boys put them chains on her and amazingly they are allowed to walk out of the Georgia State Capitol without fear. There's a million people outside waiting on their asses when they put their hands on Park Cannon and the best people can do is say, why are you arresting her with phones in their face? Oh, Henry McNeil Turner is turning over in his grave. We'll come to McNeil Turner in a second. Uh, uh, understand that that's a very different thing than what happened in the 1850s and 60s. Black people turned it up and liberated themselves. Why is that important? Because after that happens, the South resents it. The Democratic Party is the party of the South, the party of the people, the white people. The Republican Party is the party of business. They not only love it, now they're going to reconstruct the South. Here's the problem. They can't reconstruct the South with them white boys down there who just got their asses beat. They're going to need some new voters. 13th Amendment, boss is slavery. 14th Amendment, equal protection under the law. 15th Amendment, right to vote to all men, black men included. What they're going to use those black men for to vote where in the South. OK. And since and they divided the South up into five military districts after the Reconstruction. And they saying y'all can't come back into the South. I mean, come back into the union formally until you create new state constitutions. you got to ratify these amendments, all this kind of thing. So they create these new state constitutions. And who's in the room? All these black men. So Robert Smalls and then. Who gets elected to office? All these black men after they've written these new constitutions. State level, local level, read Eric Foner's work, uh, Freedom's Lawmakers, which is a compendium of all that stuff. Uh, uh, even to the United States Congress, Robert Smalls, the man known as the hero of the planner. That's a story we had to talk about another day. My man, Andrew Billingsley, still alive in his mid 90s, wrote a great book on uh, Robert Smalls. Andrew Billingsley from Alabama, my mama home state, representing Alabama. We talked about that in a second too. But Robert Smalls goes from the hero of the planner in the United States military, another 189,000 who fought in the Civil War, 10,000 of them black people were in the U.S. Navy, by the way. And that ain't even counting Harriet Ross Tubman, who directed troops in battle, Cabahee River. Y'all check that out. Um, Robert Smalls comes back to D.C. as a congressman. When the, when the museums open back up, go down to the Smithsonian and see his statue. They got a statue of Robert Smalls in, in the Smithsonian National Museum of African History and Culture. So they're writing those constitutions. What happens? Now we're going to get to Park Cannon. No, wait, pause. Right, before we get to Park Cannon, what happened in Georgia? Let me finish up on the press conference. The Democratic Party is the party of the lost cause. <laughs> in other words, because their voter base is white people. And so they can't win elections with all these black people voting. And that's when you start seeing the violence, Professor Hunter. We're going to tie all these threads together. The violence like in 1873, uh, the so-called um, Crushank case, United States versus Crushank, when black men and women have to go to the courthouse because the Republican sheriff says, I'm going to keep the ballot boxes here for safe keep until we can count them because these white boys have decided they're going to overthrow the election. And they come and these white boys surround the place and start shooting in there and throw a firebomb in there. And when the fire comes, black people running out, they massacring black people. And the thing makes it to the Supreme Court because they let them go with an all white jury, jury selection, all this kind of thing. And so they start dismantling Reconstruction almost immediately with violence. This is the violence. So 
what you see over the arc and now i'm going to wind this up i won't get into it this is a whole history we should talk about we should devote some time maybe we're going to narrative side and really devote some real time on this from the period of reconstruction from the late 1860s to now what you've seen is that in order for one of the two parties democrats and Repu or republicans to win elections They've got to have enough votes to win elections. In order to get enough votes to election to have enough elections, they've got to be open to whatever constituencies that they need to put together. And whiteness as a floating signifier that can move between either party, which started in terms of the modern parties with the Democratic Party, found itself enough floating between the parties so that by the time you get to the so-called great migrations of the 20th century, when black people start leaving these oppressive areas because the North and the Republicans having gotten what they needed in terms of business, the railroads are in place, we didn't made a deal with these new bourgeois people down here in the South, we will now abandon the Negro. Oh man, my man Rayford Logan wrote a whole book about it called The Betrayal of the Negro, The Nate Deer. I was just, <laughs> look at that. There you go. The betrayal of the Negro from Rutherford B. Hayes, the Woodrow, with the great Dr. Rayford Logan. He coined a term called the Nadir. This is Carl G. Woodson's friend on the faculty of Howard University for a number of years. At any rate, when they start abandoning black people, now they trapped in these white primaries. They trapped with the Democratic Party. The courts are not uh, uh, honoring the laws. Plessy versus Ferguson, the civil rights cases. Are, so guess what? They start leaving. And as they start their migration, you start seeing what? Now these Republican parties who love black people what do they say? Uh, in the South, white people uh, don't mind being uh, close to black people as long as they don't get too high, meaning black people don't rise too high. In the North, white people love black people rising as high as they want, as long as they don't get too close. <laughs> so look, these black people start migrating and now they're in these cities, New York, Chicago, Oh, we loved y'all when we was fighting for y'all when you was living in Mississippi, but you in Chicago now, hell no. And so then you start seeing stuff like the Lily White movement in the Republican Party because black people move north and say, we Republicans. Why? That's the party we fought with in the you know, Civil War. So we Republicans here. Oh, hell no. You ain't no Republican here. <laughs> so you see white nationalism really began to take root in the early 20th century. And then. Then you get. Black people saying, oh, this is a trap. Let's just figure out what the hell we're going to do. And you see a shift in the 1950s, whereas the white nationalists, the Democrats in the South are now the white nationalist party, Strom Thurmond and them, all them cats, they realize that this civil rights legislation from the federal level is going to pass because there's momentum for it. In 1957, they do something called the Southern Manifesto when the Civil Rights Act of 1957 is passed. And we'll talk another day about, of course, the Voting Rights Act of 65, uh, 68, the Fair Housing Act, the Civil Rights Act of 64, which is a very important act we'll talk about again uh, soon before we get finished today. As that, as those politics begin to un unfurl and the black people in the South who are not leaving confront the Democratic Party in the courts and in the streets. This is what we would call the civil rights movement, typically. What you see, which is made possible because black people got guns. Now, you know, we're going to talk about guns in a minute. There are three books I want to highlight, two of which we've talked about before. The great Charlie Cobb, my friend Charlie Cobb, how guns made the civil rights movement possible, that not this nonviolent stuff will get you killed. My, also, my very good friend, Baba A.K., the man, Akinyele Umoja, down at Georgia State. We will shoot back armed resistance in the Mississippi Freedom Movement. And another book that I'm going to mention in passing, which is a very important book by Nicholas Johnson called Negroes and the Gun, the Black Tradition of Arms. This is an important book because he shows we always rock with the gun, baby. So they're not effing around coalition in Georgia. I see what y'all doing. 
And in fact, we're going to really, the only book I'm going to quote from of those books is, uh, oh, yeah. The reason Nicholas Johnson called his book Negroes and the Gun is because he's a riff on this book, Robert Franklin Williams, Negroes with Guns. We're going to talk about Robert Franklin Williams in a minute. But at any rate, in the 1950s and 60s, as the civil rights movement jumps off, protected in many ways by black women and men who got guns, and on the newsreels, Dr. King and them getting beat up and dogs biting them and all this kind of stuff, clearly this legislation is going to pass. The white nationalist party is in problem. If they don't, if the white nationalist party host, the Democratic Party got a problem. Because if they change these laws and let people start voting, if they let black people start participating, they're not going to go into the Republican Party in the South because ain't nobody stopping them from registering to be Republican in the South because there's five Republicans in the South. And guess what? Interestingly enough, Condoleezza Rice from uh, Birmingham in her memoir writes about the fact that her parents went down to register. They ain't gonna let them register as Democrats. Hell no, because that's who controls everything down here. So what does her father do? He registers as a Republican. That's how Condoleezza Rice became Republican. You understand? So, so, so anyway, because it's tactical at that point. Now, I can't speak for her, but I certainly know what she said about her parents. So at any rate, as it's clear now, now they're winning the court victories. They beat up the white primary. Look at, you know, the Albright case, Nixon, my man, who every time I go to Tuskegee, I go through and stop by his house just to see it. Gamillion, Dr. Gamillion, medical doctor, Gamillion versus Lightfoot, where they tried to gerrymander every black out of Tuskegee. Oh, y'all should see that design. How the hell can you put all the black people out of Tuskegee? How can you even draw something? <laughs> there was so many sides in it. By the time we got to the Supreme Court, you, said, you know what? We, should, we shouldn't even write no opinion. We should have a one uh, word, one sentence opinion. This some bullshit overturned. I mean, I I mean, you can't you know, so as as the courts throw all that stuff out, and then of course the Civil Rights Act of I'm sorry, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 is passed. The flood of blacks coming to the Democratic Party. So what did the national white nationalists do? Well, she we ain't gonna stay in no party with y'all. They move to the party of business. Mm -hmm. When I call the Republican Party the White Nationalist Party, I'm not saying that that's the political name of it. Its name is Republican. The floating signifier, the thing that can move from place to place is white nationalism. It lived in the in the Democratic Party till the blacks got in. Then it moved to the Republican Party. Now, why is that important to what we're talking about today and what Joe Biden is talking about? Joe Biden persists like those people Howard Thurman was talking about, even though he was raised a Christian, he becomes, according to Peter Eisenstadt, and I like that term, an anarcho mystic. Meaning what? Belief systems are belief systems. I ain't got to hold on to the old rugged cross no harder than I hold on to the star and crescent no holder, no stronger than I hold on to what Gandhi talking about or Buddhism, no stronger than I hold on to the Orisha or the Abosun if I'm in West Africa or the Luas if I'm doing Vodun. I ain't got to hold on to none. I understand all of it is handles. Joe Biden got a handle too. His handle is called America. He done made up a country and he's not alone. There are millions of others who've done it. Y'all imagine this is a nation. You got an anthem. You got some founding fathers. You got some mystical figures. George Washington is the father. Abraham Lincoln is the son. He gave his life. And y'all even trying to recruit Martin Luther King to be the Holy Ghost. Why? Because he going to stand there and say, I have a dream today. I have a dream that from Stone Mountain in Georgia. Oh, here we go, kids. We got a father. We got a son. We'll make a Negro the Holy Ghost and we'll hold it all together with we're better than that. We're not. But there is no we, bro. But Joe Biden is standing at the press conference with two things in mind. Here we go. 
It's a we. And in order to keep us together, the Democrats need to be in, in power. And in order to keep people together, that means the companies like the cat that called him and said, hey, bro, we got to go get this boat out of the Suez Canal. Hop, chop, chop. Or, or his friends, the Clintons and stuff, who looking at their investments as well, including the ones that continue in Haiti. Shout out to the Clintons in Haiti. All that foreign policy, all that AFRICOM in Africa, all them Latin American governments like the one in Venezuela where you propping up this fool Juan Guaido, who we clearly see is trying to foment a coup in Venezuela, set aside who Nicolas Maduro is or isn't. The United States foreign policy is the same when it comes to corporate interests. So in order to keep all that going, he got to win elections. In order to win elections, all the people who are not white and the white people with some sense or try to think has this are now in your party. So in order to do the rest of the agenda you was put there to do, you got to win elections and you got to win elections with that coalition that all came over here. Once them Republicans decided to win elections, they're going to stay with the white nationalist parties. But everybody can count. Everybody can count. <laughs> and once you start counting, you realize now unless the Republicans go back to what Rance Priebus and them was talking about when they lost that election uh, to Barack Obama the second time. Unless they go back to that, they're in trouble. And you know what Priebus and them was saying? Look, it's like a taste test. If you put the values they say they're running on side by side and take the labels off and bring all them Negroes who go to church five times a day and all them uh, Puerto Ricans and Dominicans who are died in the wool Catholic and you put same-sex marriage and you put transgender and put all that in it and then make them pick which one they go with. And then they then you put the label back on. You take out the blindfold. Oh, shit, I'm a Republican. Right. See, what Reigns Priebus in them was trying to tell them, if you give up that white nationalism, you could pick off <laughs> some of these people over here who are extremely what we would call conservative on social issues because they don't they ain't really following policy. They thinking this is all about abortion and guns. They really think that. And so, or if they don't think it, you can make them think it. And you can, but see, they ignored Rand's previous in them. And they doubled down, tripled down. Now they got this TV uh, bomb, this bankrupt TV bomb, uh, Trump. And they have now put all their eggs in the basket of white nationalism. And, and Biden and everybody can count. So they're like, hmm, you have no babies. You're going to piss off even some white people was like, look, I'm a racist, too. But damn, I do need to get my teeth fixed. So why can't you just expand Medicaid? So, <laughs> so, so now, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So now, and now they looking and they saying, hmm, okay, we ain't got but one shot at this. We got to stop people from voting. Why? Because the Democrats vote is based on all them other people. And now my vote is based on 15 people. Wait, how many? Oh, 14 people. Well, my base is 14 people. Wait. 12? Okay. Uh, voter ID. Uh, Y'all can't pass out no water in line. Uh, it's a felony to look at a voting line. I mean, oh my God. Oh my God. Now, they so irrational at this point, they don't realize passing all them laws is going to throw out your little hillbilly friends. How many of them toothless uh, white people in Georgia going to go out and get the right ID? Do you know how many of them going to pass out in line because they can't get no water? How many of them have you checked? How many of them vote absentee? They are so irrational at this point that they are passing laws that they haven't gamed out to realize, yeah, we're trying to get them black people and brown people. Yeah, you'll get a whole lot of white ones too. And guess what? Who's going to be the more motivated base? The, the more and more you just drop everything, put your clan hood on, boy. You put your clan hood on. And we're going to say, you know what? I don't even vote, but I went to register. Why? Because that motherfucker got to go. You, Brian, Brian Kemp, baby. Thank you. 
Thank you. And so Joe Biden is sitting there. The lady asked him three times as he running. The third time he said, I don't even know if it's going to be a Republican Party. Do you? Because the Democrats are gaming that these cats may overplay their hand. And I know they got a bling on this blow-dried uh, cosplay coal miner, Joe Manchin, who's owned by the corporate interests in West Virginia, and Christmas <laughs> Cinema, whatever the hell she's doing or not doing in Arizona to get HR1 passed. But this one here is for all the marbles. Why? Because like those Black people in the Civil War, who turned a conflict over money and labor into a liberation war, these, the X factor, the Democratic Party is the black people who vote Democratic, not because they believe in Joe Biden. They don't give a damn about Joe Biden. They can see Joe Biden from what he, who he is. Some of us who remember Joe Biden was the chair of the House Judiciary Committee. I'm sorry, the Senate Judiciary Committee and, and went easy on Clarence Thomas and let him slip through. Oh, yeah, we remember. We know who you are, Joe. You yesterday's man to use the quote of the book. But, but, but it ain't about D or R. This is about we live in a two-party system for now, and how do we best attack it to reconstruct it? Because our ultimate goal is to have better life and get to better life. We got to be on the planet, which means we got to deal with this question of blowing each other up. We got a peace movement. And to, to get to even that, we got to make sure we don't destroy the ball. There's environmentalism. So in order to get people to vote for you, you claiming all this stuff. Oh, yeah, minimum wage. We're going to raise that. I, I'm going to let that shit go as soon as I get in here. Don't worry about it. I'll give it away. Uh, all this other stuff. But guess what? While we voting for president and vice president, we're not that naive because two by two, who's this Montezaire Jones cat? I don't know, man, but I'm looking over here. Who is this Corey Bush coming in? I don't, I'm not sure, but we can take two or three of them. What's Cosio Cordero? What's this sister Presley from me? Who is this Ilhan Omar? See, just like what happened with the radical Republicans, not just like because it's black people now, and just like perhaps what happened in the South with during Reconstruction when Republican black people won election, you're now starting to see the Democratic Party become the home of more and more people. And as the demographics change, more and more people who are uh, now thinking, you know, I do really believe this stuff. And as I believe this stuff, I will be part of the coalition that makes it real. And that's where you start having a problem. Mm. See, because now the Democrats, it don't even have to be the Democratic Party once you get enough people. See, that's the thing we have to understand as well. But let me let me hasten this to a close. I want to bring this together with uh with uh with Haiti and with so so Biden's press conference. He's letting you know one, we'll get rid of the fil filibuster if we can. He told him that basically. He can't just say it, but yeah. If we have to it now, of course, that means they're going to have to drug Joe Manchin or, or something like that because they're playing for all the marbles. HR1 changes everything. Because, you know, they've already filed the law, the lawsuit. They've already filed the lawsuit in um, in Georgia in federal court. So that's going to but 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 they've stacked the courts. The election don't matter. Yeah, the Democrats and Republicans are the same, but they're not the same for the way you're saying they're the same. They're the same because in order to win elections in a quote unquote democracy, you've got to have numbers. In order to have numbers, you've got to promise things. In order to promise things, you've got to be in a position to be able to say you can fulfill some of those things. The Republicans have dropped all pretense because the votes they're drawing on are straight white nationalists, which has poisoned their minds so deeply that this is a crack that can be exploited using the Democratic Party potentially as a battering ram. This ain't about people being Democrats or Republicans. I'm neither one. I'm a black man in America thinking about how the hell do it free us. So in that process, enjoy 
Georgia, they've passed these draconian laws and we saw what happened to Park Cannon. She's knocking on the door of this uh, illegitimate governor who stole the election that put the, the Stacey Abrams won in Georgia. Kemp, these, 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 these formless flesh jellyfish state troopers taking her out. And I thought to myself, I went back in that moment as black people were like, what is she doing? White people are like, what does she do? What does she do? That ain't the question. No, that's not the question. As Park Cannon was being arrested a couple of days ago, I went back to September the 3rd, 1868. Henry McNeil Turner, born in South Carolina. Henry McNeil Turner, working his way out of an enslavement environment into freedom. Henry McNeil Turner with the Civil War uh, soldiers who turned that army into an army of liberation. Henry Turner runs for office. In July 1868, he's elected to the Georgia State Legislature. That same dome. Two months later, the Georgia Democrats, who are the party of white supremacy, now the Republicans. At that time, the white nationalists are the majority of the legislature in Georgia. Even during Reconstruction, they expelled all the black members. And on September the 3rd, 1868, y'all go get Edwin, Edwin Red Key's book, Respect Black, the speeches of Henry McNeil Turner. Or my friend Andre Johnson, who has done the voluminous works on Henry McNeil Turner. My former student now, brilliant historian on his own right, James Morgan, who's done work. They got a website on Henry McNeil Turner. Go look up Henry Turner. Henry Turner's friend, Martin Luther King's grandfather, A.D. Nixon. No, not A.D. Nixon. A.D. Nixon was in Montgomery. Uh, Alfred Daniel Williams, A.D. Williams, his mother's father. Friends with the great uh, Henry Turner. No, no, no. Willis Williams. No, no, it was A.D. The Georgia Equal Rights League. They helped found that. These are the fearless black uh, politicians and black community in Georgia in the 1860s. And so as I thought about what was happening as Park Cannon got her hands put on and these troopers didn't fear for their life in that moment, as they might fear if Robert Williams has been there. I'm going to go to Robert Williams in a second. They haven't forgotten Haiti. We're going to get it all in. We're going about an hour. So we've been going about an hour. So the um, it made me think about the speech Henry McNeil Turner gave in that same Georgia legislature, September 3rd, 1868. Y'all can read it. Let me just, let me just, let me just do this. I'm going to read y'all a little bit of what Henry McNeil Turner told them once they told him, oh no, nigga, you and the rest of these black people that got elected, we voting to put you out. Wait, I can't have my seat? No, this ain't Julian Bond now when they did the same thing to him. Where we had a whole thing. Y'all go to narrative and get the annotated version of our long discussion about Julian Bond. We talked about him saying to around town, C.T. Vivian made transition. By the way, C.T. Vivian's memoir just came out. Possibly C.T. Vivian. It's in the action, baby. Memory, <laughs> memories of a nonviolent warrior. My God, the great C.T. Vivian. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. But at any rate, Henry Turner. This is what he said. Oh, I can't have my seat. Let's go to the speech. Mr. Speaker. <laughs> I love how he's, you know, you know how they do my colleague. Mr. Speaker, before proceeding to argue this question upon its intrinsic merits, I wish the members of this house to understand the position that I take. I hold that I'm a member of this body. Therefore, sir, I shall neither fawn nor cringe before any party, nor stoop to beg them for my rights. Some of my colored fellow members in the course of their remarks took occasion to appeal to the sympathies of members on the opposite side. I hear you, Joe Biden. I hear you, Kamala Harris. I understand. We're better than that. And he says, he turns says, and to eulogize their character for magnanimity. They're going to defend their own character. Henry Turner says, it reminds me much, very, sir. It reminds me very much, sir, of slaves begging under the lash. 
This ain't 2000 with a whole lot of black people around. This Negro in the Georgia legislature in 1868 with about four or five other black people and the whole place surrounded with Brian, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with Kemp's uh, white nationalist forefathers. He, he, he talking like this in 1868. He says, I am here to demand my rights and to hurl thunderbolts at the men who would dare cross the threshold of my manhood. There's an old aphorism which says, fight the devil with fire. And if I should observe the rule in this instance, I wish gentlemen to understand that it is but fighting them with their own weapon. So he could call them devils today. He's in here by himself. These other Negroes then disarmed. Oh, please. I, I, I'm a good person. I'm not begging. That's like slaves. And he said the scene presented in this house today is one unparalleled in the history of the world. From this day back to the day when God breathed the breath of life into Adam, no analogy for it can be found. Never in the history of the world has a man been arraigned before a body clothed with legislative, judicial or executive functions charged with the offense of being a darker hue than his fellow men. I know the questions have been before the courts of this country. And of other countries involving topics not altogether dissimilar to that which is being discussed here today, but sir, never in the history of the great nations of this world before has a man been arraigned, charged with an offense committed by the God of heaven himself. Cases may be found where men have been deprived of their rights for crimes and misdemeanors, but it has remained for the state of Georgia in the very heart of the 19th century to call a man before the bar and there charge him with an act for which he is no more responsible than for the head which he carries upon his shoulders. Brian Kemp, you corn pone clown. Stacy's coming. You're done. Cause you just cut the head off eight hillbillies in foresight, another 20% of it, trying to get at her, people who look like her, trying to convict her of the crime of being born black. Turner says the Anglo-Saxon race, sir, is the most surprising one. No man has uh, ever been more deceived in that race than I have been for the last three weeks. I was not aware that there was in the character of that race so much cowardice mm. and so much pusanalimity. The treachery which has been exhibited uh, in it by gentlemen belonging to that race has shaken my confidence in it more than anything that has come under my observation from the day of my birth. What is the question at issue? Turner says, why, sir, this assembly today is discussing and deliberating on a judgment. Oh, this is, I love this next line. He, Turner says, and, and cherub means angel. He said, oh, as we know, but there may be a couple people who didn't. Turner says, there is not a cherub that sits around God's eternal throne today that would not tremble, even if were such an order issued by the supreme God himself to come down here and sit in judgment on my manhood. If God told the angels to come down here and pass judgment on my manhood, they wouldn't move. They'd be like, I'm not going there and messing with him for me to turn. And you crackers think, oh, he calls them buckra. That's the word they would use. <laughs> Gentlemen may look at this question in whatever light they choose and with just as much indifference as they may think proper to assume. But I tell you, sir, that this is a question which will not die today. This event shall be remembered by posterity for ages yet to come. And while the sun shall continue to climb the hills of heaven, he goes on. He goes on, Henry Manil Turner, to talk about, uh, in fact, he asked, in fact, I just got to read one more line. I'm keeping because this thing I love. Y'all go look up Henry Turner. Let me see. Let me see. Where can I find this? No slaves begging under this lash. I had to pull up a, a version here because I was looking for my, uh, oh, here we go. <laughs> he says, go on with your oppressions. Babylon fell. Where is Greece? Where is Nineveh? And where is Rome, the mistress empire of the world, 
Why is it that she stands today in broken fragments throughout Europe? Because oppression killed her. Every act that we commit is like a bounding ball. If you curse a man, that curse rebounds upon you. And when you bless a man, the blessing returns to you. And when you oppress a man, the oppression also will rebound. Where have you ever heard of four millions of freemen being governed by laws and let, yet have no hand in their making? Search the records of the world and you will find no example. Governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. How dare you to make laws by which to try me and my wife and children and deny me a voice in the making of the laws? I know you can establish a monarchy, an autocracy, an oligarchy, or any other kind of ocracy that you please and that you can declare whom you please to be sovereign. But tell me, sir, how can you clothe me with more power than another where all sovereigns are alike? How can you say you have a Republican form of government when you make such a distinction and enact such prescriptive laws. Turner goes on to say, whatever y'all doing this devilment, it's not gonna stand because we're not gonna disappear by virtue of a rule. Now we pause, now we switch. Coming back through Biden. Biden's press conference, as I'm listening to it, I'm listening to it with the ears of somebody who knows enough American history and enough black movements in America to understand that this is a watershed moment and that if they can get HR1 passed, then you're going to see a couple of things, I think. You're going to see a straight political war, one with precedent in the decade leading up to the uh, Civil War, which is why I did pull this book as we're talking about people shooting up Atlanta, people shooting up Colorado, a brother getting stopped because he had all these weapons going into a store in Atlanta the other day. This is a book called The Field of Blood. Violence in Congress and the Road to Civil War. Joanne Freeman writes a book that says she shows that today's hyperpolarized environment cannot compare with the turbulent atmosphere of the decades before the Civil War when the U.S. Congress itself was rife with conflict. Legislative sessions were routinely punctuated by mortal threats, canings. Y'all know about the canings. Uh, what's my man name? Thaddeus Stevens. Uh, Deaths. And all out slug slugfest. Right? Congressmen drew pistols and waved bowie knives at rivals. One representative even killed another in a duel. Many were bullied in an attempt to intimidate them into compliance or silence, particularly on the issue of slavery. Now, when Biden is talking, he's well aware of the, the climate in this country. He sees the violence. Oh, we're not going to pass gun control legislation. Hey, Joe, we just need a vote. I'm not for gun control. My corporate master who I serve is really, you know, God, I got to stay in this office and to get that. I got to get these coal miners by telling them their jobs coming back. I know it's a lot, but I got to keep this office. Do you understand how much money I get from these people? So I got to do. No, so no, I'm, I'm not. for. You know what? You ain't got to be for gun control. Boss. I better go reread Henry McNeil Turner. You can keep effing around. But here's what's going to happen. You're emboldening those people who keep shooting stuff up. And you think we're just going to sit back and get shot? Oh, sir, let me remind you, Biden is aware of all that. So what he's saying is, if it come down to it, I'm going to have to go see, you know, I got to talk to the people who own Joe Manchin. It ain't going to be no political campaign, although that pressure is important. I got to call to the owners now. Get your mans in line. And if we have to blow up the filibuster, we will if we can get to that point. But if we don't want to get to that point. And then, well, you're going to run again? I don't know if it's going to be a Republican Party in four years. Do you? They are banking on the fact this thing is going to fracture in a way that they can't put it back together. And I'm not so certain politically that they are wrong because the laws that they are passing in these states for voter suppression, they're all going to be challenged in court. And if and when they get to court and the court upholds them, there's something in the law called judicial supremacy 
meaning that what the courts rule is indeed the law. And then there are cases in the history of American jurisprudence where the court ruled one thing and the people just decided we don't care. The courts are going to lose legitimacy if they uphold all this stuff. And we stack the Supreme Court. OK, there's about to be a crisis different than the Civil War, but similar. History does not repeat itself, but history rhymes. In other words, so we've been here in this settler state before. And meanwhile, the black people, other oppressed people in this country are not just going to sit and watch it like a TV show. We will act. The question is, will we act in large enough numbers with enough coordination to be able to act in concert to do the things that will advance our interests, not only as black people, not only as black and brown people, but human beings? Will we be able to get together? And that's why you see at this moment, while we're here on Saturdays, uh, while Tamika Mallory's at the Grammys, where people are on Facebook and they're organizing, people are trying to find platforms to get people to think and to organize and to get together more and more and more to punch through the static because we are we are not just like that tanker in the Suez. We are floating slowly into a crisis. And once this thing happens, all the king's horses and all the king's men not going to be put it back together. And I'm talking in this case about the earth, also about the nation states. Now, what we saw with Park Cannon in Georgia and her being arrested, nobody interfering. I said Henry Medea Turner would be turning his grave because at least he would have been like, you buck, get your hands out. He might even slug them. And I'm saying, you thank God you had the people. You, you think whatever God you believe in that you didn't have somebody in there that said something to you. And then you turn around, and try to arrest her or him because it had been me. I probably wouldn't be here on Saturday. I say that. I don't know in the moment, but I'm just saying I'm looking at her like all of us and thinking, man, if that cracker had turned around and looked at me and took a step out of the race, to all of his dental work. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Now they may have shot and killed me in that moment, but he ain't never got to worry about arresting nobody else. I'm saying because that's the kind of anger and fury it elicits. And when I see those young brothers and sisters in the Not Effing Around Coalition who are strapped down there, march the Stone Mountain, and people say, oh, they shouldn't do that. The Second Amendment either applies to everybody or it doesn't. And if you start selectively applying it, and you disarm this cat who came in the store with all them guns. Okay, maybe that's good. But you didn't stop this white boy on buying guns on the way to kill all those Korean sisters and these other Asians over here. And you didn't stop that other white boy who went there and shot up Colorado. Y'all don't stop none of them. And somehow they all live. They get arrested. How the hell is this boy still alive? How the hell is this one still alive? And y'all kill all the black people for being alive. You killed Breonna Taylor in her bed. But guess what? Now, let's go to one of the four I mentioned. Not we will shoot back. Where my man Akinyele tells the stories in Mississippi during the civil rights movement of how Mega Everest was strapped, how a lot of times you see those marches, what you don't see is brothers and sisters in the bushes with guns saying if the Klan take a shot today, that's when we're going to see the other thing. And you're going to turn the camera off because this ain't no nonviolent. It's a nonviolent march. But we got all the heavy artillery in the bushes on the other side. The Klan over there, we over here. Or Charlie Cobb who was in SNCC, and if you hear him and his comrades, Stokely Carmichael, the great Kwame Ture, and the rest of them talking about how, you know, many of them were armed in those cars as they're driving back and forth because you see what happened to Schwerner, Goodman, and Cheney. You see what happened now. We're, nonviolence ain't nothing. Now. I'm in the middle of the night. Self-defense, armed self-defense. I'm not going to get into Negroes and the gun, which gives you the history of black people and gun ownership, which is very important, but I will linger for a minute on my man, Robert Williams. Robert and Mabel Williams. Never got a chance to meet Robert Williams, but I did get a chance to meet Mabel Williams. A very nice lady. You look at it and think, oh, this is a sweet old lady. Somebody grandmama. Yeah, y'all better not mess around with Mabel Williams. Trust. <laughs> Trust. 
Y'all go look up Robert and Mabel Williams. In fact, look up a website called the Freedom Archives. In fact, join narrative. So when you come on the other side, see, we do the heavy lifting for y'all. By the time this gets up and we have it annotated, you can just click the, the links, the hyperlinks, among other things. And then we have a conversation about it. This Robert Williams was, uh, he was the former president of the Union County branch of the NAACP in Monroe, North Carolina, a veteran. Uh, he went to West Virginia State College for Negroes and Johnson C. Smith. Shout out Charlotte, Johnson C. Smith. Um, very interesting brother. He was declared a fugitive from trumped up kidnap charges after a racial disturbance in Monroe in 1961. Why? Uh, there was he was demonstrating for civil rights and eventually he and uh, his wife, they went to Cuba. They had to get the hell out of the country. They had him on the FBI's most wanted list. In fact, they started printing a newsletter called The Crusader. There's the cover from 1962, April. They're publishing it in Cuba. There's the cartoon. Here's Cuba. Here's Castro. Stop. Stop. No racists allowed here. Oh, y'all can't come to Cuba and get to Williams. They have fled. Timothy Tyson wrote a book called Radio Free Dixie on the on Robert and May. And because they had a broadcast called Radio Free Dixie. They broadcasting from Cuba. They in Algeria. They go meet with Mao in China. Williams eventually turns himself in, comes back to the United States to go on trial. He's an international fugitive. Robert Williams died of old age and disease at his house. I remember reading his obituary. I was on the way going to, uh, going to class, and I read his obituary riding the bus in uh, West Philly. I'm like, oh, man, Robert Williams, I say. Robert Williams said, I'm a revolutionary like George Washington, and I want to die like George Washington, not on the battlefield. I want to die on my porch at my house, just like George Washington. Why y'all think all the revolutionaries got to die in a damn fight? You fight so you don't have to die in a fight. And so Negroes with Guns tells the story of how when the Monroe, Louisiana cat said they were going to uh, get guns and arm and, and form rifle clubs and yeah, NRA shit, we black, we can join too. Sounding like, uh, sounding like Ida B. Wells. By the way, here's this one at poster. Mm. Interstate flight, kidnapping. They put him up on a trumped up charge of kidnapping. There's a whole story behind that. But at any rate, I want to get to this point of, of, of with guns. And this is in, in, in thinking about Park Cannon and Brian Punk Kemp and these little punk stormtroopers down there in the Georgia State Capitol in the spirit of Henry McNeil Turner, who was like, God wouldn't send an angel down here to pass judgment on my head, man. Hey, you think I'm going to let you buckra pass judgment on my manhood? They started picketing because there was a pool, a local pool that uh, had been... Um, I want to say, oh, wait, let me show you this one, too. This is him and his wife. Desmond Mabel, when they were younger, I met her, of course, as a much older lady and just the sweetest pie. Smile, beautiful smile. And I'm thinking, you're the same one in that famous picture, you and your husband with them damn Lugers. <laughs> and she just laughed. But at any rate, there was a, uh, they, they had accused in North Carolina these two little black boys of rape. One was like nine years old. Because they, they call it the kissing case because they had been with these white girls and they accused them of kissing the white girls. And that means rape, like Scottsboro, 1932-33, you know, Rosa Raymond Parks raised money for Scottsboro case, this kind of thing. But so the NAACP is picketing and they're protesting because it's a whites only pool, but the money is municipal. It was raised by everybody. So they're at the protest, right? Watch this. The picket line continues. This is Robert Williams. On Sunday. On our way to the swimming pool, 
we had to pass through the same intersection, US 74 and US 601. Those of you Southerners know some lonely stretches in the South, these interstates. There were about two or 3,000 people lined along the highway. Two or three policemen were standing at the intersection directing traffic, and there were two policemen who had been following us from my home because they're already on the list. I want y'all to think about this now when you start talking about activists and who's not an activist and who's willing to put their life on the line. As soon as we, oh, it says an old stock car without windows was parked by a restaurant at the intersection. As soon as we drew near, this car started backing out as fast as possible. The driver hoped to hit us in the side and flip us over. But I turned my wheel sharply and the junk car struck the front of my car and both cars went into the ditch. Then the crowd started screaming. Trigger warning, I'm about to use the N-word because it's what he wrote here. Then the crowd started screaming. They said that a nigger had hit a white man. They were referring to me. They were screaming, kill the niggers, kill the niggers, pour gasoline on the niggers, burn the niggers. We were still sitting in the car. The man who was driving the stock car got out of the car with a baseball bat and started walking toward us. And he was saying, nigger, what'd you hit me for? I didn't say anything to him. We just sat there looking at him. He came up close to our car within an arm's length with the baseball bat, but I still hadn't said anything and we still didn't move in the car. What they didn't know was that we were armed. Under North Carolina state law, it is legal to carry firearms in your automobile as long as there are firearms uh, that are not concealed. No firearms are concealed. Second Amendment. I had two pistols and a rifle in the car. When this fellow started to draw back his baseball bat, I put an Army 45 up in the window of the car and pointed it right into his face. And I didn't say a word. He looked at the pistol and he didn't say anything. He started backing away from the car. Somebody in the crowd fired a pistol and the people again started to scream hysterically, hysterically, kill the niggers, kill the niggers, pour gasoline on the niggers. The mob started to throw stones on top of my car. So I opened up the door of the car and I put one foot on the ground and stood up in the door holding an Italian carbine. At this time, all this time rather, three policemen had been standing about 50 feet away from us while we were kept waiting in the car, well, while we kept waiting in the car for them to come and rescue us. Mind you now, he know they racist too. Then when y'all coming over here and stop this, you see these illegal people over here? When they saw that we were armed and the mob couldn't take us, two of the policemen started running. One ran straight to me and he grabbed me on the shoulder and said, surrender your weapon, surrender your weapon. I struck him in the face and knocked him back away from the car and put my carbine in the face, in his face. And I told him we were not going to surrender to a mob. I told him that we didn't intend to be lynched. The other policeman who had run around the side of the car, here we go. You know, I watch Chicago PD and all that old bullshit. The other policeman who had run around the side of the car started to draw his revolver out of the holster. He was hoping to shoot me in the back. They didn't know that we had more than one gun. One of the students who was 17 years old, finally, put a 45 in the policeman's face and told him that if he pulled out his pistol, he would kill him. The policeman started putting his gun back into the holster and backing away from the car, and he fell into the ditch. Oh, I'm sorry. This is the punchline. Me and Nick Cannon read this book together a couple years ago. It's hilarious. He, this, this was his favorite part. Here it is. There was a very old man, an old white man out in the crowd, 
And he started screaming and crying like a baby. And he kept crying. And he said, God damn, God damn, what is this goddamn country coming to that the niggers have got guns? The niggers are armed and the police can't even arrest them. He kept crying and somebody led him away through the crowd. Tell y'all no more. <laughs> Brian Kemp, bruh, son of Herman Talmadge and Ernest Talmadge, the father and son, racist governors of Georgia that preceded you. Let me tell you something, Brian, as your dying demographic tries to shore up its electoral majorities by stopping the rest of the people to vote. Don't you understand that voting is the best option for you if our common humanity is the thing that we should all be trying to preserve, that white nationalism is going to not only rob your people of their health care, not only rob your people of the ability to maybe use the Democratic Party as the point of entry for a battering ram against global finance capital. Don't you understand? I know you understand. You, of course you understand, but you can't win no more elections and you got to be the one in power because your corporatists have told you. But don't you understand that every time you make it harder for somebody to vote, one of these young cats right here, especially somebody who may go back and find a copy of Negroes and Guns, realizes, I ain't scared of you, bro. Now, if you pull your gun out, troop, because you're arresting his sister, and I want to know why. If you pull that out, you see this here? I'm going to blow your brains out, big boy, except I'm not going for the chest center mass. Your face ain't got no uh, bulletproof armor on it. And I'm saying, people say, that would be crazy. Y'all better go read some history. That's what kept many of the civil rights workers alive. Kwame Ture said they would have all been killed if them Negroes wasn't strapped. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm not talking about the civil rights workers, although some of them were. I'm not talking about Dr. King, for whom nonviolence was a way of life, except in self-defense. Go read what Martin Luther King said. I'm not even talking about the Thurmans who asked Gandhi about self-defense, and Gandhi understood violence for self-defense. I'm talking about regular-ass Black people who are not politicized, who are trying to just get through the day with their families, who y'all gonna pick the right one. And what you did last week with Park Cannon, you're getting a little closer to something you can't control. Because y'all ain't got muscle like that. Because a great deal of your military are the family of those people. And if you think they're just going to stand up and salute some imaginary thing called a nation, then you have misread world history. And so let me now tie that together with where we stopped in Haiti. Because we're not going to spend a lot of time on Haiti. We talked about Haiti for two weeks. And uh, if y'all want to really get into Haiti, you understand that Haiti is... And we talked about that. I showed you all the books and, you know, y'all can go back and look. Well, all the books. I'll show you some good point of entry books. There are many, 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 many more than that. But the Haitian history, as we know, we talked about last week, really can be divided into several sections very quickly. You got the pre-1791 section where the Africans or the Europeans have come and dispossessed the land of the Native Americans. They bring all these Africans in. By the time you get to 1791, you got almost half a million Africans there. If you read, of course, we talked about the Black Jacobins and so many other books on Haiti. But ultimately, after 1791, when they have the Haitian Revolution, you see the um, uh, the the rebellion from 1791 to 1803. We talked about that a lot. 1804, they they declared themselves independent New Year's Day, and then from 1804 to 1825, you have basically the echo of Toussaint because Toussaint is dead. They 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 took they kidnapped him. They took him to France. They killed him. Dessalines comes after. In fact, when I was at the Haitian Embassy. Uh, back in 2017, for the 214th anniversary of the Battle of Vitellier, the uh, Vertier, the uh, Battle of the Indonesian Revolution, I saw this book on the coffee table. This is the visitor's book, the Livre d'Or. 
1804 to 2004, Bicentennial of the Republic of Haiti, right? Now, this ain't the book I saw, but I was like, I need that book. So I'm talking to these cats. They had a library, right? So anytime I go in a library, a private library, a public library, and when I'm looking for the books I don't have. If it's black books, I could usually spot the books I don't have because most of them I do. Have, oh, I ain't seen that book. And, you know, book people will tell you, you can tell a book a lot of times by the color. That's how Schomburg had his library design. We had to talk about that another day. Him and Gene Blackwell, he used to tell a story about that. St. Ernestine Rose, all them. Anyway, so hmm, you know, I was like, I was looking at this. I said, damn, this is a pretty book. We're in the embassy, which is part of the contradiction and part of the challenge for Africans who don't live in Haiti, who are always looking for heroes. Black Americans always looking for heroes. Robert Mugabe, hero. Kwame Nkrumah, hero. Nelson Mandela, hero. Winnie Mandela, hero. Okay, no, no question. Also complicated. Also compromised in some ways. Also human, in other words, like other people. So we're looking for uh, Maurice Bishop, hero. He's kind of uncompromising. You know what I mean, Walter Rodney, hero. I mean, we're looking, you know, we're looking for heroes. Nanny the Maroons, hero. You know. Uh, anyway, Haiti, we want it as a narrative of heroes. So does the government. But so we show up at the embassy. We're not thinking about uh, Martelli, Michelle Martelli, who was the United States man who uh, Hillary Clinton went down there during Obama's administration and said, I know he didn't get enough votes to be in a runoff. I know maybe less than 15 uh, percent of the Haitian people participated and he didn't even get that. Remember, that's when uh, Wyclef Jean said he gonna run for president of Haiti. It's all, all kind of mess. They put Martelli in the runoff and then put him in as the president. The guy down there now, uh, Jovenel uh, Moise, that's Martelli's man which means he's the United States man, which means he's international finance man. They call him the banana man. That's a whole nother story. Well, it's not really a whole nother story. I'm saying, but at the same time, that sweet Nikki, because he was a, a, an entertainer, you know, Trump ain't Trump ain't the first head of state anywhere to be an entertainer and then move into politics. Sweet Mickey was one. Hell, Martelli came to Howard University campus in like 2014 or 15 and, and came over to School of Business to talk about development. And the student's like, you going? I said, I can't go over there and watch Sweet Mickey. <laughs> I can't. I mean, because so, you know we're already complicit. Because the in the diaspora, everybody's a hero to us. That dude ain't no hero, and Haiti is a heroic place, which is why I was honored to go to the uh, embassy to to give a few remarks on the Battle of Vertier. I mean, I'm like, my God, this is an honor. The Haitians, are you kidding? I saw Septimus Clark's picture on the wall, Jean Baptiste Dusable Auto, and so I'm looking at this book like I want this book. <laughs> Because I'm looking through it, though. It took me a couple of years. I tracked that. I only made a thousand of these. This is copy 951. That's a story from another day. Anyway, they got the, all the artwork. Here's where Dessalines is taking the white out of the middle of the Haitian flag. The dude on the other side, Alexander Petion, ends up after Toussaint is killed. Dessalines takes over and then they split. Dessalines decides, I don't know about this prime minister first council. I'm going to be the king. And Petion is like, nah, bruh. So they split. Petion takes the south of uh, Haiti and uh, Dessalines takes the north. I'm looking at the pictures like, damn, how far back does this go? It goes back to the origins. It's got the Boyce K. Ma. Remember we talked about that last week? It's got the Boyce K. Ma ceremony. Haitian art, by the way. And I got a whole bunch of books on Haitian art. We can't really talk about it. I'm going to take about two more minutes. I just want to show y'all some of these pictures, which is why I had to get this book, right? Here go the sister, the maroon sister with the with the uh, machete in her hand, with the with the chain being broken. They serious about this heroic narrative. I'm thinking about this. How the hell does this compare to American history? All you black people, I know. you Look, I lived in Philly for 17 years. I've been in Bessie Ross house more time than probably most of the tourists ever go to Philadelphia. Damn Bessie Ross. 
damn Bessie Ross. Why? Because here is Catherine Flom, who is seen as the mother of the Haitian flag. Because after Toussaint ripped the white, I'm sorry, after Dessaline ripped the white out, she sold the Haitian flag. I mean, how you gonna be mad? Y'all want Bessie Ross? Y'all want her? <laughs> See what I'm saying? I'm saying they don't be bullshitting with their narrative. I mean, it's a beautiful narrative, even as they got this criminal enterprise going on. And then they show all the presidents, all the people who've been in Haiti. And then the last page, almost the last page, they got the four that led up to 2004, including that brother right here, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, which is where we're going as I wind to a close on this in Haiti. Aristide was the first democratically elected president of Haiti. Let's get to him. Remember I said the first phase is pre-1791. The second phase is the revolution, 1791 to 1804. Third phase is after 1804. After Dessalines and Petion split, then Dessalines dies, then uh, 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 um, Boyer, President Boyer comes in and reunifies Haiti. He's able to hold it together to around 1825. Some A few years before, France says, y'all got to pay us. For winning this war and that's the debt that crippled haiti because remember in terms of nation states the politics may be local but the money is global suez mess up get on the phone get your governments in place haiti has been a perpetual victim they have either been under occupation or global fighting against them since the revolution so with 1825 when uh when boyer is gone as president from 1825 to 1915 this is the period Gardas was talking about. Go back and watch last week. That's the period where you have these generals. You get nobody's elected. You've got uh, you've got a, a guy named Faustin Saluk who says, I'm gonna be the emperor. This is the second empire. The first one was uh was Emperor Henri Christophe. I'm gonna be the second emperor. Why? Because yeah, they're trying to figure out forms of government, they're trying to trade, they're trying to build their economy. But as I said last week, those Haitian Maroons, the people in the countryside who want to live better life are saying none of y'all are serving us. So there's this perpetual unrest, but they can't work it out on the island because they're constantly being interfered with outside, especially the United States, who doesn't recognize Haiti until 1862, in part because Lincoln and then wants to send us there because he wants us out of the country. I know y'all love Lincoln, but it's okay. Y'all can back up off him. And so Gard has talked about that period. And then you get into 1915, the United States Marines go in there under Woodrow Wilson and occupy the country. And in many ways, Haiti been occupied since 1915. Mm. either directly or indirectly 1915 to 1934 you get the first direct u.s mil uh, military uh occupation and they set up the haitian military and it has been the haitian military that they've used as the thugs on the ground to keep haiti destabilized and with those little cracks in between every time it looked like haiti's getting ready to, to break some free air and those africans who did what we just saw them pictures of their descendants try to work it out here come all these damn international corporations, finance, capital, foundations. Shout out again to the Bill Clinton Global Initiative. And all these other people who come in and say, oh, hell no, because we need the baseballs out of Haiti, like the Dominican Republic. We need the cotton out of Haiti. We need all these other. We done built the factory over here. We now, No, hell no. And which government is going to allow us unrestricted gangster capitalist access? We don't give a damn about you farmers and the rest of them. So anyway, let's continue very quickly. This won't take much longer. So. What you see is from 1934 to 1957, after the after the United States leaves, they got a thug in the Dominican Republic named Trujillo, who they own. Uh, read Gerald Horn's book, Hot War in the Cold Zone. You could talk about all this stuff. I mean, we talk about this much more deeply. Those of you who know, 
They slaughtering Haitians in the DR. That beef between Haiti and the Democratic Republic, these are from people whose ancestors had tried to unify the entire island uh, because of these imperialists. But everything is there from colorism, xenophobia. Hey, y'all be xenophobic. Y'all the same damn people. Got out the same boat. But some people speak Spanish and some speak French. It's a difficult thing. So at any rate, you see uh, these, 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 these presidencies, Vincent uh, Lescott, uh, who was there uh, before 1957. The reason I know him, in fact, is because I saw a picture of him in Howard University Museum. He came to Howard. He's standing there with Nelson Rockefeller talking to the president of Howard University. I'm like, this ain't nothing but finance damn capital because Haiti ain't never had no elected president up until Aristide, which is where we're getting to now. 1957, oh my God. Let me, I'm gonna talk about it. If I can find it, I'll show it to you if I can. In 1957, there's a dude that comes to power. They got a whole section on Vodun in here too. Oh yeah, here we go. There's a dude that comes to power who is beloved by some people in the, in the countryside because he brings them health care when they can't get it. This is a damn picture of his doctor's bag and his hat. That's what he was known by. Mm -hmm. He was known as Papa Doc. Papa Doc Duvalier. There he is with his wife. And then 1957, he's uh, he's appointed president of Haiti. Here he is with the only muscle that counts in Haiti, the, the army. Hmm. He embraces you know, the authentic Haitian culture, you know, a very proud of the culture, but he, like a couple of these cats before, embraces Vodun. He's talking about that. And he cultivates a group of people as his kind of inside armed security who go out terrorizing people called the Tutomokut. The Tutomokut. These people, you know, now, I mean, Haitians, man, Haitians are as black as anybody in the world. As Dr. John Henry Clark used to say, whatever religion black people believe in, they believe in that. John Clark said, Black people will out Pope the Pope and out Muhammad Muhammad. <laughs> so whatever you, whatever we believe. So Vodun, when this cat embraces, and of course, remember that's when we talked about Jean Priest Mars and all these. I mean, authenticity. You know, he's trying to get this thing together. So here he is with his son, Baby Doc. You see, I said I got to get this book. It's just a nice book to have resources. But at any rate, very quickly, between 1957. Then eventually the man declares himself president for life. He dies in 1971. He turns it over to his son from 1971 to 1986, baby doctor president, the dictator. And then once baby doc is run out, because guess what? This is one thing I love about the Haitians. Y'all saw that sister with the cutlass, right? See, black people not like Americans. I'm sorry, black Haitians not like Americans. They can steal an election for y'all. They can steal in broad daylight a governor's election in Georgia and Brian Kemp can sleep at night. He can go into Georgia legislature and say, this bill will protect, strengthen democracy. He didn't have to give that talk from his bedroom at the governor's mansion surrounded by phalanx of armed guards. Why? Because they're not scared of y'all no more. Well, actually, they are terrified. He's terrified. Uh, yeah, anyway, but in Haiti, at some point, and most of these people who have been in these so-called transitional governments have been military people. And they've been trained outside of Haiti in the DR or in Georgia Avenue of, uh, 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 what's the name of it? Um, school for the Americas used to be the name for it. They changed the name and then act like people don't remember. They train them other places and then bring them in. They, they, they governing on the interests of international capital. But every so often, black people in Haiti is like, where my cutlass at, man? I don't even need no damn gun. Let's go. And so they keep <laughs> pushing back that, that spirit, that irritated genie that Jacob Carruthers writes about. The island of memes, as my dear brother and elder Wade Nobles writes about. They just not going to stand for it. And then on CNN, it's like, oh, look at all this violence in Somalia. Look at all this violence in Liberia. Look at all this violence in the elections. And, and people say, oh, my God. No, see, them is people who you ain't just going to steal an election. 
<laughs> you understand? There's a very good documentary called An African Election on Ghana, the Ghanaian elections many years ago. Not many years ago, maybe 20 years ago. And I'll never forget, it's a beautiful scene in there where after everybody's voted, they're voting in these big plastic tubs where you got a slit, you put your vote in. Then they're counting the votes and calling the votes in to Accra to, to the tabulation from all over the country. And they show after they voted, now they're going to count the votes. This is what the people do, Professor Hunter. They put the big plastic tubs in the middle of the village on the ground. And you see all these people, the whole village out there in a circle, and the police are there. The police ain't doing nothing. There's too many people. Then the vote counters come. They pull a vote out. They show it to everybody. They say who it's for. They put it in the pack. And the whole circle, hundreds of people, they say, 32. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm saying, see, y'all gonna stop talking about black people and, and political participation. It's a question of culture in a lot of places, right? Y'all not gonna steal this. If you steal it, no problem. We'll see you tomorrow, like Burkina Faso when them young people went down and burned down that building. Oh, hell no. Nah. So they, this happens in Haiti over and over again. So guess what? Between the, uh, the, the the exile of Baby Doc, and by the way, every time they want to get rid of a dictator they put in, or even when it was a democratically elected like Aristide, the real power comes in. So what happens? Baby Doc got to go. So where does it end up? The French. Oh, you can come with us, bro. You got a house here. Like Mobutu was in Congo. He's in France. I mean, they take, uh, when when Duvalier and them will come, they come to the United States, they meet with the president, Democrat or Republican. Because foreign policy, they're the same. So at any rate, He's deposed, and from 86 to 90, you got a problem. You got Nanfi, you got Manigat, you got uh, Nanfi again, you got Averill. Nanfi was a general. They're going to they gonna keep that thug life going. But this time, you got this little priest, Aristide, been preaching out there in the countryside. So he got people who love him with a similar gloss to the way they loved uh, 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 Papa Doc without the thuggery, and he's for the right thing. Lavalier, the flood. In other words, we're going to have people who represent us, who are going to go out, we're going to take this country in the spirit of Haiti, and we're going to make it what it needs to be. They say, we want him. And so they call, and the United Nations, who's also part of the problem, they come in to, to monitor the elections, and the first time they have these externally monitored elections that are free and fair, Aristide wins 67% of the vote. He is elected. He's sworn in. He's serving food on the presidential uh, mansion. Uh, in the presidential mansion, he's telling people, I'm going to disband all these uh, thug life stuff. All you two that used to run with Duvalier and them, y'all are all ex. I'm putting y'all out. Y'all better get the hell out of the country. He lasts four months before the coup. Fomented by U.S. people, paramilitary coming in from the Dependent Republic, doing all this kind. He lasts four months, and what happens after that? Three for three years, they don't have a president. Uh, Sedras is there, but the Organization of American States, headquartered in D.C., a client organization of the United States, they call themselves. We're going to have an embargo. We're going to no, you because Haiti overthrew democracy, so we must do that. And they they put an embargo. The embargo failed. Guess who was exempted? George Bush was president. George uh, W. Bush, American corporations. Yeah. So you didn't handle damn embargo and the goods is coming in from the DR anyway. So at that then, at that point, Aristide, who is in exile, Aristide says, I must be returned. And what happens? In 1994, he is returned to office. Who returns him to office? Bill Clinton. The UN returns him because he requested and demanded and the people said, you got to bring. So the UN intervened saying we had to intervene. I mean, they've asked me, he's returned. The U.S. plotters scatter and RSD comes in and says, I got to disband the army. 
remember that it's from 1915. The U.S. set up this army, this problem to begin with, even though the, the external pressure had always had Haiti roiling. The U.S. comes in and they got from 1914 to 1934. You see in this book right here, pictures of all these white boys who considered to be the rulers of Haiti. No, actually, it's not in this book. That's one thing I love about the Haitians. Uh, class problems, international finance capital, thugs running the place. But they don't really mess with white people. I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, we can get tripped up on that. And that's a footnote. I shouldn't even have mentioned that, but I will mention it. But at any rate, I did mention it. You see all these provisional governors, these white men who are, quote unquote, ruling Haiti. And then you're going to see something that continues to this day. Here's where I end. Rene Preval is brought in because he's second in command to Aristide. Because what happened to Aristide? He's there, returned in 94. He says, I'm going to disband the army. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, no, no, no. I, I apologize. I apologize. He is uh, actually no. He's exiled again. They oh, he's going to disband the army. We got to get rid of this guy. So once again, they drive him from the island. Preval is put in as the president. But guess what? The people are not going to be satisfied. We want him back. We want Aristide back. Preval is there from '95 to, to '98. And what happens? My God, what did the Haitians do? Those people forced them. And Aristide was brought back. Aristide is reelected in 2000 and he served to 2004. But the whole time he was there, he was being attacked. He was being destabilized. He gets airlifted out again. This is where Randall Robinson starts his book, Haiti and Unbroken Agony. The United States is involved knee deep in it. And since 2004, the United Nations which has a, a force there, they came into Haiti uninvited because typically you have to be invited. It's called a chapter seven request. You got to ask people to come in. They didn't, not, not like when Aristide called before, this time, and in fact, when I think about Aristide, it reminds me of Patrice Lumumba in some ways. You don't have a way to, to, to do it, so you're trying to, to buy time. You know, uh, uh, Lumumba called for the United Nations and the UN comes in and they in collusion you got Dodge Hammersold in them. I mean, they don't know what to do. Ralph Bunch trying to negotiate. And uh, Lumumba said, no, nah, send a Negro. I need somebody. with some Y'all sent the Negro. Send me somebody who can make a deal. It's very difficult. The Belgians, the Americans, everybody colluding. And he, of course, gets assassinated. But Aristide is desperate. I got to come back. So the UN comes back. But now he's exiled again. Central African Republic, then South Africa, Jamaica. Aristide apparently is back in the country now. He's still alive. John, uh, Baby Doc is dead, but his son is back. Why? And this is where I'm going at the end here. They put together a fight for, they've been fighting for sovereignty, the Haitians have. But these external groups led by the organizations of the uh, Organization of American States, the UN, the United States is in it, the EU is in it, led by France who held up Haiti for their money. They call it the core group, that group. With the, United, with the United States and the EU. They're the ones who are handpicking who ends up in charge. They were the ones who back sweet Mickey Martelli. Again, I told you Hillary Clinton went down there and was like, nah, this guy got to make it into the runoff and this is our man. They are the ones who then now was Jovenal, who was sweet Mickey's man, who is now the president, the so-called banana man. And that occupation continues to this day, except now as every other time. The Haitians is like, y'all got to go. Well, well, if they go, what's going to happen? I mean, to our company. I mean, I mean, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What's going to happen to democracy and the rule of law and the people? That... Look, we'll work that out. We'll work that out. But Haiti continues in that unbroken agony because they have declared sovereignty the most important thing. And what has happened, whether it be Haiti, 
whether it be the state capital of Georgia, whether it be anywhere where people organize to resist and ultimately destroy those who seek to oppress them, the people who seek to oppress them do not negotiate. They meet you with violence. So if you want to look for the source of violence, how to end violence in America, y'all stop messing with oppressed people because the most violent people in this country, to quote Henry Menil Turner, are you. Um, I needed a moment of silence. <laughs> you know, you know, and as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, a lot of us major in the minors, we spend a lot of time and uh, concerned with things that aren't going to free us. We spend a lot of time uh, examining and criticizing folk. Like you said, if it, if they're doing work, we don't have to go nitpick. We got larger concerns. Yes. Globally, we have larger concerns. But collectively, we are so great when we understand our connection to one another. So I just want to thank you again, because I didn't know how you were going to weave that thread all the way through. And somehow you managed to do it because you're a genius. No. And, you know, genius is a process. You are. It is a process. Genius. Yes. And, and, and also a model, you know, for all the people out there collecting books. This is not about the books you're reading now. This is about the legacy of books that you're collecting, the knowledge that you're collecting right. here on Saturday in narrative. And again, it's a process. Things don't happen overnight. And a lot of us are impatient because, you know, 400 years, you ain't been here 400 years, mm -mm. 30, 40, 50 years, <laughs> you know, 60 years. Henry Turner Ooh. doing things. Oh. Years ago that most of us don't have the fortitude to do today. But we got a lot to say. So I need us to say less, you know, and, and do more and understand that we all have a part in contributing to this, to the freedom that we all say we want. What part are you playing? What, what are you doing? What are you doing to mm -hmm. further? And, and these classes should open your mind to understand and to see more clearly where where the holes are, where the gaps are to be filled, where the, where the work is to be done, where there are already batons laying on the ground that can be picked up. Henry Henry Turner laid a, a baton down. Yes. Pick it up. Robert Pick and Mabel up. Turner left a baton. Pick it That's up. Right. I mean, Ma Robert and Mabel Williams. I'm sorry. Yes. The, yes. the Williamses. The Williamses. I mean, and, and there's power in that. I said on my radio show, if every black person registered for a gun, there'd be gun control legislation tomorrow. Today. Not today, I think. Yeah, yeah it'll be you today in a special session. You see, y'all go back and check. Go to narrative now. And check out the session we had on the Black Panthers. They changed those gun control laws so fast. Once them brothers and sisters busted up in the legislature with those weapons, that's right. And nobody's calling for violence. Uh oh, so be clear because that's the other thing. You know, people will soundbite situations and try and attempt to cancel and shut people up. But uh, yeah, we're smarter than that. That's we right. know that this is this can't be soundbited, bitten, because it, there's a larger message here. And if if, but, if people are going to do that, we already know why. I, you know what? And pl please forgive me, the, uh, Professor Hunter. And I, I promise you, this is only for a couple. Of, I no, must no, mention no. this. No, I must mention this because you just evoked her. It's amazing how she comes through you. Maybe the first conversation we had was about Ida Bell Wells. It was right. And Ida Wells said a, a Winchester rifle should occupy a, a place of pride above the hearth of every black home, every Negro home. When she was writing her newspaper in Memphis, the truth seeker, after they had lynched her friends who ran the people's grocery. I did want to mention a couple of just one other thing that she and there, there are any number of places you can pull from from this. I decided to pull 
there's a number. I mean, there are a lot of good books on Ida Wells. And by good books on Ida Wells, I mean books with her writing in them, including her, her memoir. This is uh, just from a little, and this is one, I'll try to find one, a copy that y'all can find, find for very cheap. We actually will Southern, have that in narrative. Whole, okay, good. Southern Horrors. Yeah. Good, good. When well, you have out of Wales, no question. This is uh, this is a from a pamphlet she wrote called Mob Rule in New Orleans. This brother on the left, Robert Charles, and there have been two good books on Robert Charles. The one that we used for a number of years was by William Ivy Hares called Carnival of Fury, Robert Charles and the New Orleans Race Ride of 1900. The one that just came out this year, Stephen Prince's new book, The Ballad of Robert Charles. This is very important. Searching for the New Orleans Ride of 1900. These are really companion books. But the best as far as the one I always start with and the one I recommend is Mob Rule in New Orleans because Ida Wells was a contemporary. She's writing about lynchings. And she says, watch this. She says, uh, immediately after the awful barbarism, which disgraced the state of Georgia. In April of last year during which time more than a dozen colored people were put to death with unspeakable barbarity. I published a full report showing that Sam Hose, who was burned to death during that time, never committed a criminal assault and that he killed his employer in self-defense. There's a whole story about that. The lynching of Sam Hose. Du Bois writes about it because by then, by then him, Nina and Burgar are living that. It's very important because Du Bois, I thought the world was just thinking wrong about race, but I realized it was probably more than that. Then they lynched Sam Hose. Out of well, said, I did this report. She said, but since that time, I have been engaged on a work not yet finished, which I interrupt now to tell the story of the mob in New Orleans, which despising all law, roamed the streets day and night, searching for colored men and women whom they beat, shot and killed at will. This story begins and I won't read. Uh, I'll, I'll just read this. Uh, this. Uh, let me see if I can find it, because he talks about the two brothers who were killed. Um, yeah, here it is. She says the bloodiest week in which the bloodiest week which New Orleans has known since the massacre of the Italians in 1892. So you got to understand this thing about whiteness. Whiteness only expanded recently. They killed Chinese working on the railroads. They would kill people, Japanese on the West Coast. They killed uh, Italians, Irish. I mean, all kind of things. Right. By they, I mean the whites. And who are the whites? The whites are whoever they say they are as they're expanding or constricting based on what they believe to be the thing they're scared they're going to lose, which is their whiteness. This is the thing that's animating all those algorithms. They're looking for an alternate ex explanation. But at any rate. She says the bloodiest week was ushered in Monday, July 24th, by the inexcusable and unprovoked assault upon two colored men by police officers of New Orleans, fortified by the assurance born of long experience in the New Orleans service. These three policemen, Sergeant Alcoin, Officer Mora and Officer Cantrell, observing two colored men sitting on doorsteps on Dryads Street between Washington Avenue and Sixth Street, determined without a shadow of authority to arrest them. One of the colored men was named Robert Charles. The other was a lad of 19 named Leonard Pierce. The colored men had left their homes a few blocks distant about an hour prior and had been sitting upon the doorsteps for a short time talking together. They had not broken the peace in any way whatsoever. No warrant was in the policeman's hands justifying their arrest. No crime had been committed of which they were the suspects. The policeman, however, securing the firm belief that they could do anything to a Negro that they wished, approached the two men and in less than three minutes from the time they accosted them attempted to put both colored men under arrest. The younger of the two men, Pierce, submitted to arrest, but for the officer Cantrell who accosted him put his guns in the young man's face ready to blow his brains out if he moved. The other colored man, Charles, was made the victim of a savage attack by Officer Mora, who used a billet and then drew a gun and tried to kill Charles. Charles drew his gun nearly as quickly as the policeman. 
and began a duel in the street in which both participants were shot. The policeman got the, policeman got the worst of the duel and fell helpless to the sidewalk. Charles made his escape. Before it was over, Robert Charles, this is why I like this, Carnival of Fury. Robert Charles shot 27 white people, including seven policemen. They burned the building he was in where he was shooting. They pulled him out, chopped him to pieces. Then they went on a lynch spree and found as many other black people as they could find in New Orleans. Mob rule in New Orleans. But it started with the police messing with somebody. See, y'all understand. We know what's going to happen next. It's not just predictable. History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. I was at Dillard. This is this is why we go to the conversation. I was at Dillard University. Uh, we were there, the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations. We were there for our conference at Dillard. Maybe this was 2017. Uh, the year before the great musician Randy Weston made tr uh, made transition because uh, he made transition later on that because he was there. We were all there together. Randy Weston, y'all should look that brother up. What a, what a beautiful spirit, an amazing force, Garveyite, intellectual. He and his wife uh, were there. And so, Fatima, we, and, I, and, and the talk I gave was wrapped around another brother who in 1973 took to the rooftop of the Howard Johnson's in New Orleans and took out a whole bunch of white people including military. This guy was a military guy, Navy. I don't know if you remember him, uh, uh, Karen. Uh, Gil Scott Heron did a remix of uh, of Marvin Gaye's Inner City Blues. And he did a rhyme in there about a brother named Mark Essex. Um, the idea of the sniper. Robert Charles was provoked. Mark Essex, as it said, did what he did from the roof of the Howard Johnsons, shooting white people from the top of the roof because he said these two brothers have been killed at Southern University. If y'all go look at uh, Tell Them We Are Rising, the HBCU documentary by, uh, what's our brother's name that does all the documentaries? I, I know the brother, I can't, mm -mm -mm. it'll come to me in a minute. One more time. Stanley O'Neill? No? Stanley, okay. not, not, not O'Neill, Stanley Nelson. Stanley O'Neill, yeah. 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 yeah, it was uh, uh, yeah. That's, that's right, no, 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 but yeah, that's right, thank you, thank you, that's right, Stanley Nelson. Uh, he does. He, he he gets toward the end of that documentary. He talks about the slaughter of those two brothers, those students at Southern University. We know Kent State. A few people know Jackson State. Many people don't necessarily study what happened at Southern University. Those black students, you know, and then the liberation struggle, they're struggling against oppression, this kind of thing. They, they shoot these two brothers, these damn police in New Orleans. And so Mark Essex, it is said, influenced by that. When you when you listen to uh, Gil Scott Heron's Inner City Blues, which is a brilliant piece. And he comes in in the middle of the rhyme and he says, you know, oh, it make you want to holler sometime, throw up over your hands. And then he goes into the rhyme where he says, you know, did anybody ever ask what made Mark Essex choose to fight the inner city blues? Yeah, Essex took to the to the rooftop gorilla style and watched while all the crackers went wild. They eventually took him out with something called an elephant gun. It just blew him off the roof. And so when we were down there at Dillard, I opened my remarks with that Gil Scott Heron as a way to walk across to Marvin Gaye. And I anchored the whole thing around Marvin Gaye's What's Happening, Brother, which to me is like the, really the threshold piece on that What's Going On album. But the day before we went out, the great Larry Crow, Bernie Gallman, Mario Beatty, all the rest of us, we went out riding the streets of New Orleans with a brother who was from there. And I was like, bruh, take us by the place where the Howard Johnson's was. 
because he was telling us all about how they wouldn't let the black people across the bridge, you know, Gretna and all them places in Algiers, you know, where these white boys are standing with guns during Katrina, like y'all not y'all ain't escaping over here. I mean, this is this is humanity, right? Our common humanity, y'all MAGA people. It's gonna dissolve in your face. So he took us by there. This is just before they took the monuments down, too. So we went by. I said, man, just stop. Let me get a good picture here. And I put it in the in the presentation. That's where the spot was where Mark Essex with the spirit of Robert Charles carnival of fury either we're going to vote either we're going to organize and create a society that's different than the one that has existed up until now or if it comes down to violence y'all ain't got that kind of muscle trust trust let me stop with that <laughs> let's uh let's bring in i was gonna play a video but i'm, I'm watching oh, good. We, but, so let me bring in this brother jonathan jonathan is from grenada welcome Hey, oh. hello, hello, brother Jonathan. How are you guys doing? It's an honor to be here. Um, I watch you guys every Saturday. It's an honor to be here. It's really hey, the honor is the honor is ours, brother. Malcolm X is uh mother's people. Yes, from Grenada. Yes, yes. So, what's your question, brother? Okay. So, my question is actually two questions, and you kind of touched on it as we as you ended talking about Haiti. Um, the first part is why hasn't revolution transformed African countries, right, in the diaspora, right? And that could also be linked to uh, African countries in Africa, obviously. And that's the first part of the question. So that is Haiti with the revolution, that is um, Grenada, Mars Bishop, that is the Democratic Republic of Congo, Patrice Malumba, right? All these um, different stuff, right? And as well as the second part of the question is, can democracy or socialism or Trotskyism or Marxist-Leninism, any of these European systems, can they really work in predominantly African societies, right? And to link these two questions, I'll use Grenada, because I'm Grenadian, right? Um, and the revolution is part of a dual struggle. So there's an original revolution in the 1950s for Grenadians' adult suffrage and a way to determine our life on a colonial system under the British, right? And that funnels itself into um, a, a rising of a leader. His name was Eric Matthew Gary, right? Yes. And um, in the 60s, he's pushed out of power by the colonial powers because he's seen as a man of the people, right? And that's not, that's, that's not what, the, um, the, what you call the petty bourgeoisie. That's not what they want, really, right? No, sir. No, sir. So, however, when he returns to power in the late 60s, early 70s, he has a change of character and he's now in the the um the mode of acquiring land um, suppressing the people um mm -hmm. even going as far as um instilling violence on the people which breeds the second part of the revolution which is mars bishop and company right and there's a great book on it here it's called um, deception and conception right yes <laughs> everything he says right but he has a scathing rebuke of the revolution in terms of um uh, how, it, how it how it's manifested itself in terms of uh, it's a it's a um, a sort of conflict, right? That kind of implodes in the end in 1983. Um, yes. right? um, well, with, with some help from uh <laughs> from, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. So because even in his book, he he recognizes that even like with Gary under his his style of leadership, when we go into independence, we go into independence under darkness, under strike. The electric companies on a strike, and you basically have 30,000 people marching. Considering that Grenada has at that time has a population of 90,000, that's a third of the population God. marching for basically freedom, which emboldens the leader, the leaders of the revolution, Mars Bishops, um, Unison Whiteman, to take 
uh, a strike and which finally results in the 1979 revolution, right? Yes. But in the end, in his this book right here, he acknowledges that um, any of these European systems, they're not really working for us. We need to go back to something that is from us because yes. it's, it's in conflict with what we believe in. But can you just answer the question? That I oh, well, Brother Jonathan, first of all, let me thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, as not only a son of Grenada, but a son of the African world. Um, those systems, as John Henry Clark used to say, don't work for Europeans. So we know the answer is they don't work. The question is, how do we build what comes after? And it's so fascinating, brother. And those of you who don't know, I not only recommend that book, um, but look up Maurice Bishop, look up the New Jewel Movement, look up what happened to Gary, that first and that second time, because you know, one of the things that the United States was terrified for, I remember watching a speech Maurice Bishop gave, uh, listening to a speech Maurice Bishop gave. I think it was in New York. It might have been in Hunter College. You probably aware or familiar yeah. with this. Yes, sir. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, one of the, it was not really a throwaway line, but one of the things that I've heard over and over again, and I would not reduce it to this because, of course, the Cubans are considered enemies of Americans by people who either are white nationalists or people who don't know anything about it. But they used to say that the problem with Grenada for the United States is that there are most people in the United States don't speak Spanish. So they could demonize Castro more easily. Well, Maurice Bishop comes up here sounding like Castro. He speaks English. <laughs> we got a problem <laughs> because people are going to listen to this and say, shouldn't everybody have housing and food? Yes. Shouldn't everybody have the dignity of labor and be able to raise family and community? Yes. Well, then I think we should come. Oh, hell no. This guy got to go. And I think when you ask why hasn't revolution worked out for the countries of Africa, this diaspora or anywhere else in that matter, and why and perhaps even why those places where which have held on, have held on by having to play geopolitics, um, whether it be Cuba, with the support of the Soviet Union first in China. And then when that collapses, trying to reinvent itself. And it's just a testament to the fortitude of the Cuban people. Uh, or Haiti with Duvalier, who threatens to go communist if the United States don't play ball. I mean, they're playing each other. Same things with Megisu in Ethiopia. You see these politicians. I think what ends up happening is when you create some free space, these interests of finance capital international capital and their tools at the political level in these nation state structures move against you. They don't believe in flags. They don't believe they're just using the countries as tools. They're going to move against you. And that includes the political bodies they've set up and fight in to continue to have control on, whether it be the IMF or the World Bank or the uh, United Nations or the Organization of American States. You know, they then will attack wherever place it looks like this thing may erupt. So a cat like Gary, for example, it's not unusual to basically fold under the pressure of what we might call neoliberalism. What does that mean? You know, we're going to we're going to let you come back in, but you got to privatize the natural resources. Uh, you need to take some loans out. So they're going to sell you with some exorbitant external debt. Uh, in fact, we want you to set these free trade agreements. Well, what does Grenada have to give? A whole lot of stuff. I mean, the joke is, oh, that's where you get your nutmeg from. Well, that ain't no real joke. When you think about McCormick Center, y'all from Chicago, McCormick family, y'all go look up the empire that's been built on the uh, foodstuffs that have come out of the Caribbean. And then at that point, more neoliberal, let's outsource labor. Let's bring labor in. We're not, we're not going to diversify, diversify the economy. If we let you get a foothold here and then we must open your borders for capital. 
international finance capital. So we can no way, self-sufficiency is a threat to the international order, but Grenada is small. Grenada will be the example. Do you understand why we've been putting all this damn pressure on Cuba? Do you understand why we destabilize Haiti? All this comes because you can't have a model emerge. So one, I think the main reason revolution has not worked out yet yeah. is because external forces that through the accident of history 500 years ago or so and then forward to today were able to form themselves and this is where i think the critique of karl marx and i agree with chris, chris hedges and others karl marx engels and marx have perhaps the best analysis of capitalism that there is i didn't say the best solution they don't <laughs> because the solution which is the better critique of Cedric Robinson and others, uh, the whole splits, like say the Trotskyists, when you say CLR James, immediately almost you start talking about Trotskyists these different ways. The solution phase is still being worked out. And I think that the, the evidence of progress and solutions for black people has consistently been tied to honoring the humanity of people of African descent, which means graft, uh, uh, launching that resistance in, in launching the building of new forms of government in the culture of the people whether it be manly in jamaica whether it be bishop in grenada uh, and this is where if used improperly in other words if, if saying yeah i'm culturally i'm with y'all uh, which is the red and black uh flag in haiti with that duvalier tried to get in when used improperly culture can be used as a weapon against the people because you claim you act like you're really with the people because of the culture, but then you're going right into the neoliberalism or the the the, the repressive state, the the, the 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 monarchy or the the oligarchy that you, world oligarchy that you're in. But if you use it with respect for the people, with an eye toward a different form of government, I think that is the most powerful way for us to launch and sustain these revolutions, but then we have to work together. That's why this whole notion of American nationalism that ADOS and all that, no, those are, those are artificial boundaries. We have to connect each other. So I'll, I'll, stop. I'll stop. No, but if we start with, we're all human, everybody yes. contributes. Yes. We, we all need to eat. You bring what you bring and then everybody eats and those who can't contribute, we're going to take care of you because there's more than enough. Yes. And if we do that globally, there we and, and and not even you know be your culture, bring what you bring to the table in the fullness of who you are because we need you to come fully yourself. That's true. And then we all get to enjoy this, but because we are, are dealing with the mentality of lack, people who come from places that they didn't have, and they bring that with their weapons and their violence uh -huh. into something and try to dominate because they never had sunshine and light and fruit that's an abundance. They're in a lack mentality. That's the thing that has to be conquered and broken apart. This mentality of lack. That's right. So, that's right. That's right. And, and let me just say, um, Jonathan is 26. He told me in the chat, 26 years old, Dr. Carr, and he's an educator. So oh, you're one of us. Yeah. Where are you teaching? I'm um, just kidding. I live in my book right now. I teach at a public high school, right? Um, this was this is like actually my first year teaching. A public high school in the United States. But well, back home, I taught for two years back home before I moved here. So we need more teachers. We need more people who care about people who want to actually, because this, this is the thing. And let me just thank you, Jonathan, again, it's random. I'll go on Twitter, ask you who wants to ask a question. Jonathan's like me. So I sent him a link this morning, never met him before. And I, I just, you know, I'm humbled and honored that we have this kind of 
family, this kind of, you know, yes. group of people that this, this, this is what we attract. And um, I know that, you know, mm, this is special. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jonathan. Hey, man, let, let's, 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 let's keep in touch. Karen, isn't that something? Man, listen, and, and as I'm, as I'm sitting here, first of all, you, you're talking about, um, you know, the demonization because they speak a different language. The media, we, when you talked about Joe Biden and I brought up the media, the media has been used from time in memoriam to shape, you know, Hitler was great at it. You know, the media has been used to shape. Trump was great at using the media to shape, even demonizing the media to shape a narrative about people so that we don't like each other, so that we are afraid of each other, so that we hate one another. And this has to be flipped on his, on his head too, which is why I think what we're doing here, not just on Saturday, but a narrative in terms of cracking open, you know, showing people people, giving you entry points so that you can do your own scholarship, your own study of humanity. That's really where it's about. And put, right. it, and put it together. I mean, you and I had a conversation this week about souls of black folk because, you know, we're going to offer, just like we're going to offer Ida B. Wells, we're going to offer souls of black folk in narrative, but you, we're going to talk about it. And then we're going to have a book club discussion, top of May, middle of May. You and I are going to have a book club live in narrative talking about souls of black folk, but people will have the book our conversation about it, and then they can come with their questions and their perspectives. But so many people have opinions about things and they know nothing. I sit here most of the class quiet because I'm learning. You can't, you know, all these experts that the media offers up, people who know nothing, and they have them in the split screen and two minutes fighting over. And I'm like, neither one of these people know anything. In no depth. And so how are we being fed? Well, and, and, and as you know better than I do, the split screen is there and we are drawn in by the by the conflict because that ain't nothing but theater. The real issue is the thing that comes on when they go to break. It, that's why I always call it new uh, commercial news entertainment media. It ain't even about the argument. It's about drawing you in. And as you stay there, OK, we'll be right back. And now here comes the reason is <laughs> different. You, you got to invert that. It ain't about information. That's just get, getting eyeballs. And, right. and we need to be impervious to that check. So uh, oh, we definitely impervious for it. You fact, did you? I would ask you, did you? You all talk about uh, this week? I'm sure you did. The uh, test, the testimony on Capitol Hill. That's a whole nother conversation. The Zuckerberg and them. No, I, no, I did not. Okay. I'm Tech Tuesday. I have oh, oh, good. Tech Tuesday. Good. Yeah, because it was it was after Tuesday. Yes. And I just mentioned it because. You know, Zuckerberg now is trying to get folk to he, he wants Congress to relieve him of the responsibility of regulation by regulating. What does that mean? If you look at the Communication Act, I think it's 1996, uh, whatever section it is, maybe Section 20. You know, numbers escape me off the top of my head. But the idea is that these the the the, uh, the Internet providers are what they call uh, kind of third party. So people can say what they want. They are they have immunity from being uh, prosecuted for hate speech or anything else. I didn't do that. I just had the platform. Now, they also have full control to take who they want off. It's because they're private companies. So Zuckerberg testifying them, what they want is, they're telling people, we want people to regulate us. And this is going exactly what you were talking about in terms of the split screen piece. It says, um, we just want, we want y'all to give us the rules. If they do strengthen the rules, they will still just allow, may probably say, well, we, y'all have to make a good faith attempt. In other words, it's still not going to have any teeth in it, but it will, reserve, will relieve them of the responsibility. Why do I say that? Because those of you who haven't yet set up, signed up for narrative, and y'all better sign up because the clock is ticking on the on the special entry thing, right? This is the last week for it. That's right. 
when you're watching this and y'all watching it now, in a minute, y'all see that black girl come on. 25 years ago, Congress passed the last regulations. Regulations. What has happened since? That's my, she had nothing to do with it. She's reading Mark Zuckerberg's script. Congress is not going to do what it should do, which is declare all these platforms public utilities and regulate them that way and figure it out from that approach, unless finally, Democrats and Republicans are the same. Yeah, all of it is the party of finance capital. You know, the only thing can dismantle this going to what Jonathan said. The only thing can dismantle this is us. They haven't moved yet to the fascist state where they don't have elections. That's why they fighting like hell to stop you from voting. Because the next step is if if they, you know, the next step is we have no elections. We canceled the elections. Remember, Trump floated that. That's where it's headed. If enough of us get involved, we can not only stop that, you might even be able to free up a little space to operate like some people who understand that it's not about Marxism. It's not about Trotskyism or Leninism. If you're talking about socialism, that's a label for something else. It's about what you just said, Professor Hunter. It's about people creating a different society than the world we live in now, the one we want to see. And can't nobody stop us but us. But enough of us have to create critical mass. Y'all come on over the narrative because, yeah, y'all ain't going to see that. Dude. We had a long Du Bois conversation. Oh, that's over there, though. <laughs> it was, it's supposed to be an introduction, but, you know. You know, Dr. Carr knows a lot, so we we kept with it, and I'm I'm really happy with what is what is evolving because it's evolving as we evolve, right? And as we as we find the needs, we are filling the needs, and the goal is not this year, next year, five years from now, hundred years from now, hundred years from now. You said something in that discussion that I'm, ooh, you said Du Bois looked at the black, the problem of black people. And, and pick 10 topics, which we're going to explore in narrative, 10 things that affect black people. Mm -hmm. And every year he picked one for mm -hmm. an entire year and studied it mm -hmm. and then came back and rinsed and repeated. And he was going to do this on a 10 time cycle for a hundred year period. I'm just going to stop there because I've been thinking about that since last Wednesday, since Wednesday when we were talking about it. And I haven't been able to stop thinking about it because mm -hmm. he never got through, I think, two or three rotations of that. No, if we don't pick up that baton, so uh, I'm saying nothing. I'm not saying I'm fighting it. the urge. I ain't gonna say nothing. Y'all gotta come over there. Right. <laughs> Sign up for this is last week for the introductory um, uh, price. We're also working on donations because so many of you beautiful people want to donate. Michael Harriet reached out. I want to buy. I want to get give classes to some people. How do I get narrative? Oh my, my man! That. Since last week, we hired a a, a call center out of Ghana. Because we are global citizens, so Come on. when you call up to talk to narrative, the call answers in Ghana. All right, oh. so we doing that, and oh. and yeah, so so this is Hunter. You building this thing? We're in it. Yeah, you you know. Thank you. You started it. No, we're, we're all listen. Everybody listening, please understand. Come on now. When you hear the loony say, "I got five on it," everybody put five on it. We about to get free because it, it's not money. Although money is the marker for it, it's resources. Yes. The most yeah. valuable resource in existence is time. What that. is work except how we spend our time, which is why the dignity of labor, read Martin Luther King, is very important. Talk about living wage. Yeah, because you want your time. You want to buy your time back. Uh, a brother in uh, Twitter talked about universal basic income. We look at the places that have tried universal basic income and tried to, whether it be Kenya or Iran or, or, or in some of these other places, Alaska, you know, with some nominal redistribution. What they see is people say, well, if you give them money, they're not going to work. Work is not about money. 
Work is about spending your time. And what they find is once people have been rescued from some part of uh, economic instability, their, their mental health increases. They don't go to the doctor as much. They go to school more. It's your time. What you're doing with narrative, when you join us, all of us, and the numbers keep going, we got to get this, bust this out. We are investing a small bit of resources into our time. And with that time, our minds expand. And with enough people, we reach a critical mass. Tuition, how much? No. You know what? Now, this tuition, no, we got to organize now these state tuition. And that's why, by the way, let me just say that right quick. That's why I have the Alabama State shirt on. I was Because this week in Maryland, there's a $577 million HBCU settlement that Governor Hogan, shout out to Larry Hogan, not for any credit. We broke you, bruh broke you. Remember when you tried to give out a quarter of that and said, that's a fair deal. Nah, the judge was like uh, Judge uh, Blake, Catherine Blake in the federal court was like, nah, y'all gotta go back and negotiate. Shout out to the lawyers. Shout out to the sister who is the, uh, what's her name? Um, Jones, who is the, uh, the the Speaker of the House of the Maryland State Legislature for getting it through. I wore this because the cases that have been so this is what sent me to law school, the Tennessee case, Guy versus Alexander, the Mississippi case, Ayers versus Fordyce, the Alabama case, Alabama State, which is the oldest HBCU, public HBCU, 1890 land grant uh, institution in the country, founded in Marion, Alabama, home of the great Coretta Scott King, now in Montgomery. They gave out, they made them give up $600 million in Alabama back in 2005 to, to redo Alabama State and Alabama AM. They made them put money in the coffer for Jackson State and put money in the coffer for Mississippi Valley and Mississippi with the Ayers versus Fordyce. Out of the Guyer settlement, Tennessee State got new buildings. So, and now Maryland has joined that. But guess what? As you, you young people who are going to Bowie or Eastern Shore or Morgan State University, as you young people who are, are going to Coppin, We'll get scholarship money out of that as they put online programs there. What we're building in narrative still makes those tuitions look like skyrockets. And guess what? If you're at those schools or if you're K-12, if you're a student like one of Jonathan's students or if you're an elementary school student, you come to narrative with your family, with your people. And that makes whatever you're getting in those formal institutions, it's going to reframe the way you even do your work there. You're going to go in a history class and like, what about this? I didn't know. Oh, I didn't know. Okay, well, let me do my project on this. It's going to change the way you view. That's right. This is the largest. So that's, that's what we're doing. The largest Africana studies classroom in the world. In the world. Because us, we all in the world. No, we, we all in class. So thank you, everybody. Thank you, Kareem and Donica, Reyes and Carl, the team. Yes. Uh, I see you, Renee, and everybody. Uh, Ayara in moderating, gathering folk up. Well, not that we even have to anymore. So I'm, I'm grateful that the water is so clean. Is she and gathering I, over there? Not a whole lot of people in coming in with with nefarious, uh, you know, designs. Folks are here because they want to learn and want to be here, and I'm, I'm grateful every single time we get to have a conversation because oh. I immensely love you, and I thank you I so. Love you too. Oh wait, I should, I should probably clean this up. I should clean okay. this up. Okay. Anytime I start talking about first and oldest, people start. Okay, let's be very clear. 1867, the same year Howard was founded, is when they call them the Marion Nine. Nine formerly enslaved Africans in Alabama raised $500 and bought some land and put together what was then called the Lincoln School. So uh, maybe about 20 years later, what you see is with the help of the AMA, American Missionary Association, the Freedmen's Bureau, no, not 20 years later, it's a couple of years later for that, they were able to acquire some property and eventually Alabama was eventually named them 
the state norm, the state school for Negroes for teachers. Liberal art. It's the oldest liberal arts school. I don't want nobody because you know I live in Philly. So anytime I anybody say Cheney, Lincoln comes in, and then Lincoln say some Cheney come in. I said Alabama State. I'm sure there's gonna be a whole lot. Let me just say, and plus my mom from Alabama, so you know. <laughs> but I love you, Professor Hunter, and I am so grateful to you. I am so grateful to you for giving us this all, but for me, a renewed lease because this has freed me up to get back to the work I was doing. I got straight away, but I didn't go see Sweet Mickey though in the school of beer. <laughs> Shout out to the Clinton Global and Mickey. <laughs> On that note, Dr. Carr, I'll see you in them streets. Uh, see you in the streets. Next Wednesday and Saturday. See yes, everybody in class. Yes, everybody have a great weekend. You too, dear.